Hello. <laughs> it's great to see your smiling face and I can't believe how good you look considering the number of hours of work you've been doing um, each week. I have been smashing it. So yeah. we are back again with yeah. the most popular guest on this podcast, the slinkiest Kit Lachlan. So <laughs> you guys had your questions and Kit has answers. If you haven't heard already, um, the first interview that we did with Kit, that goes over his general philosophy and approach to training, nutrition and stretching. For me, it was a huge paradigm shift and very much for a lot of the listeners as well. So go back and check that out if you haven't already. We'll put the link in the show notes available on propanefitness.com forward slash Kit Lachlan, one word. And uh, yeah, so I've been to Kit's workshops, read his books. And they are all comprehensive resources. There is no stone left unturned. You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. So Kit, thanks for coming back with us. It, it's a great pleasure, Yusuf. I mean that and uh, I'm, I'm always happy to come back. And, and Well, I mentioned this to you once before, but all any teacher wants is a room full of willing people and this is just a bigger room than normal, that's all. It's How's your own training going, I wanted to ask you before we actually get going on the questions and answers, because you have been working so hard recently. I have. I've actually, I was in A&E um, a couple of weeks ago, so I've got a, since we last spoke, I've had an MRI for my back, and turns out I've got an L5-S1 disc herniation, and uh, I was in A&E because I lost um, sensation and had paresthesia down the left side of my left leg, matching the nerve distribution of that disc. Right, well that's a very, very strong correlation, isn't it? That's a, that, that suggests a cause. A bit worrying, but there was no motor loss, just sensory. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they discharged me, but they said if it gets any worse, then come back. So I've had to adapt my training around that stuff at the minute, still suffering from some sciatica. Well, if it's any consolation to you, and you've seen how well I can move, um, I am absolutely certain there's pathology in my system as well. But because I've kept on doing all the things that we're recommending um, to our listeners and, and viewers, um, in fact, my flexibility now is actually better than it was 15 years ago. Um, and my strength, I've been deadlifting again, remaining in deadlift is my, my preferred deadlift. Um, and just by taking it easy and increasing the loads slowly and doing a fair amount of, I would, I would call it modest intensity volume, um, everything seems to be excellent. That is fantastic. Look, your your methods do work very well for back pain as well. I mean, I was, yes. I did my sciatica kind of uh, flared up yesterday, and I did a few of the stretches from your book. And for anyone listening, there's a there's a flowchart of self assessment that you can do to figure out what your specific um, limitations are, and you stretch through them. And I've recommended the book and the series of videos for back pain to multiple clients, and every one of them has cleared up their pain by doing the stretches in there. Yusuf, what, what our medical system, and I'm, I mean you're part of that too now of course, what our medical system really does not understand at a deep level is that the system that we've inherited from our evolutionary past is an immensely effective adaptation machine. Now if you, I mean I'm, I know you're familiar with this, the nocebo effect and the placebo effect, most people have only heard the word placebo, but if you actually see the evidence of irreversible somatic change, like for example in your case um, an extruding L5-S1 disc, 
for some people they adopt what the medical anthropologists call the sick role and they actually don't get any better they're absolved from familial responsibility they're absolved from well, they might be entitled to compensation from work or time off from work and all those kinds of things and the statistics for recovery from low back pain are extremely interesting if there's not a full return to work within 12 weeks what I I'll just pick it up at uh, let, let me just I've got a couple of thoughts in my mind Yusuf I'm just not sure that our audience realizes just the extent to which one's adaptive capacities can be gently brought to bear on a problem like the one you've just described I mean for most people the idea of a bulging L5S1 disc is you know can be the kiss of death but it's it's not real and um, the system that we live in has immense redundancy built in and of course when you when you only look at an MRI that shows a bulging disc and you can see that that bulge is impinging on a nerve it's a it's not a big move to to understand or to feel very strongly that that's actually the cause of your problem but the whole disc vertebral structure is only one part of an extremely complex system which has many ways of adapting to that particular problem now the t two things that the audience should know firstly is that the is that you've got a bulging disc, not an extruding disc, and so that's nowhere near as serious a problem. But a bulging disc still can press on an, an exiting segmental nerve, and it still can create that, that paresthesia that you described before, that numbness of the surface of the skin. Um, and of course, if the symptoms get severe enough, it can also cause all sorts of uh, uh, neurological deficits, as they're called, as, as of course you know which are things like inability to dorsiflex or you know complete loss of feeling or complete loss of action in the muscle etc etc but as you know if you survive the first six months of even a full-blown disc, disc extrusion event and there I should say as an aside there are two mechanisms here that cause all the pain and discomfort one is that the freshly exiting disc material itself is a chemical irritant to the nerve sheath but that process actually resolves itself relatively quickly, somewhere between three and six months. And this is why we say if you can walk around, even if it's uncomfortable to do, even if you're in pain doing it, you must continue to move and you must try increasing that movement envelope on a regular basis. And the chances are, and certainly the statistics support this very strongly, the chances are if you make it through that six-month um, period, uh, you're on the road to full recovery. And the second thing is that the exiting disc material also has a mechanical effect on the nerve sheet so there are two separate effects the chemical one is resolved relatively quickly and the second one the actual physical pressure of the exiting disc material on the segmental nerve that will cause downstream pain or sensation or loss of function somewhere downstream of where the impingement occurs as you know but even that will alter over time providing you keep moving and the reason is that disc material is resorbed into the body but you have to use and create the movement and the physical forces against that extrusion for that to occur. If you lie down and do nothing, absolutely, there's no force on the system, absolutely nothing will change. I suppose there's a cascade of other effects as well where you, know, you, create, the, you create more guarding, more threat perception, more of the kind of the psychosocial loop of um, movement is bad and when I do move it causes me pain. And, it hurts. And, and all of it spirals off yeah. and we've actually got it's quite hard. a lot of questions about about back pain <coughs> um, okay let me get into so. it i'll stop um let, let's get straight <laughs> into it sure um so 
first of all, thrown into the deep end, actually, <laughs> Tim asks, I don't know how to formulate this into a question, but I would like Kit to talk more about the fear aspect of tightness, particularly post-injury, and what advice he has. To give some context Look, um... so that he can reformulate this into something coherent, I'm currently working on opening up my hips for a sumo deadlift, but I feel like my adductors are maybe tight, such as a, from a fear response due to injuring my hips, having weaker glutes, mm -hmm. and it won't loosen mm -hmm. up until I get over that. Well, here's the thing. The human organism is, is a self-referencing organism, and so if you have a deep belief that this is going to happen to you, or this is actually what's happening, it's not just a question of whether or not an independent observer would see those causal mechanisms in action or not. The fact is, the way that you're thinking about the problem is literally predisposing the outcome of any activity that you take in respect to that problem. And so it's, it's a self-referencing loop, and the question then becomes, God, how can I step out of this loop? That's, it's extremely subtle, because how can you, it's just the real question is, how can I think outside the box? I have this, I have this feedback coming from my body, which says, um, when I do get into this position, this hurts, or this movement feels like it can't open up, I'm experiencing fear in my body, and, and I'm thinking about what is underneath that, and of course, what's underneath that is I'm terrified about hurting myself. This is real. So, uh, uh, that's just, that's the mechanism of what's actually happening, and of course, it's as I said, it's extremely hard to get past that. So here, in short, in brief, are the techniques that we have found to be extremely helpful. Firstly, it's necessary to understand that the protective mechanism, first, and the fear underneath that, is hardwired in your body. It's called the fight-or-flight response. Now, a lot of people, and guys like Hans Selye, that Canadian doctor who wrote the, the most brilliant book on the subject called The Stress of Life, um, all pe all medicine has concentrated on is the actual corticosteroid response of the fight-or-flight mechanism. But no one has written about what else goes on at the same time. Any time the fight-or-flight mechanism is triggered, your body's tension increases. It is never the case that your human body, or any body, any, any mammalian body, responds to any threat by relaxing, opening and lengthening. It's never happened on the planet. It is always Closing, guarding, protecting, and tightening down, protecting throat, gut, groin, the, the, the big three areas in the human body. So how do we get past this? Firstly, by recognizing that this is a natural response, that should decrease the fear dimension of it. Secondly, whenever you're in the face of that physical tension, you need to apply a stress of a calculated size. It must be enough to move the system to a new developmental trajectory, but at the same time it can't be too much because the system will shut you down. And so we are literally playing the razor's edge of too much and not enough. And so what we do is we go into the position, whatever it is that we're talking about, let's, let's say in respect of a sumo deadlift we might be talking about the squash frog or the tailor pose, some, some exercise that opens up the adductors but with the knees bent, so we're only talking about the, the ductus that, that occur between the pelvis and, the, and, and above the knee. Um, and we get into a position where we experience the tension in those muscles. And then we do something which is definitely not hardwired in the system, but which is absolutely necessary. You take in a deep breath and you literally let 
the body goes soft. Now we we just come out of a workshop in in London. It was just just so amusing. I, I'd walk up to this guy. Let's say it's a guy. It could have been a girl. And say you. And I would say, are you relaxed? And the, guy, and the guy would say, yeah, sure. I'm I'm completely relaxed. They're in the stretch. Let's say they're in a lunge hamstring stretch or something. And I say, well, just a second. I reach down and I feel their tummy, and the tummy is completely rigid. They and this is the key thing, Yusuf. Those people believe that they're relaxed, and if you have not actually had the experience in your body of being deeply relaxed, <laughs> that will be your version of relaxed. But in fact, it's not real. And so when you do actually physically say, okay, I'm going to let my tummy go soft, which is a, a deliberate choice of taking tension away from an area, all of a sudden the tension in the muscle group that we're talking about, in this case the adductors, goes down. And it may not be a huge decrease in the beginning, but it goes down. Then you take in another breath. You put all of your awareness in the muscle group that you're trying to lengthen, and you make sure that any lengthening or any stretching occurs during the period of the breath out. Now this might sound <clears throat> way too specific, but let me explain what I mean. If you try this both ways and you try lengthening a muscle while you're holding your breath, or when you st when you breathe out and the breath has stopped moving, if you try to lengthen during that period, you'll find the lengthening effect is reduced immensely. If, for example, you're doing a stretch and you find that you run out of time, as in you breathe out but you know you can still go further, stop moving when you breathe out, take in another breath, check to see that you haven't tightened up in the process, and then once again, as you start to breathe out, let your whole body go limp, and try to <coughs> try to move a bit more deeply into the range of movement. If you can do that, you will always get more movement. I think this runs up against the typical way that people stretch, and it certainly changed the way that I stretch, which is set a timer for 30 seconds, grit as hard as you can, and just bloody just go for it until you can't handle it anymore. And yeah, very rarely do you gain any range of motion unless it's just by pure attrition. Um, yeah. And the other point you <clears throat> mentioned as well about the relaxed abdomen, I think maybe 80% of the people listening, if they're sat in their car or <laughs> sat listening to this, probably realized that they were holding tension in their abdomen even when you think that you're relaxed. And it's yeah. crazy because we're not, we're not under a physical threat, but we do just have these, these resting tensions that we only realize when we, when we tune in. So I suppose the three exactly. points there for and, and, Tim, and, and, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, <coughs> sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. I was just going to say, we do have a whole bunch of free relaxation audio recordings on our site. And people, are, you know, <coughs> we, we love you to use them. I'm going to just say this before you sum up the three points for Tim. Unless you have the direct experience in your body and your mind of what being deeply relaxed feels like, it's just like whistling at the moon. You can tell yourself to relax, you can tell yourself to let yourself go soft, you can do all these other things, and it's a game you're playing with yourself. If you cannot recreate that sensation of being deeply relaxed in the moment, you haven't got it. And so, w the reason we use the lying relaxation um, as the way into this is that for most Westerners in particular, and look, look, the whole of life is conspiring to take your attention from what's happening inside you. I mean. The iPhone generation, the fact that we're on the internet now, the fact that you're sitting in your car as a listener listening to a podcast, I mean, the whole thing is so completely unreal. But 
we, are li we live in a world where we are bombarded with competing stimulation and we have to make choices between these things, not realising that there's other choices that can be made too, like not tuning in. Anyway, given, given that we are, we are, at least we hope we are trying to use this, this medium as a means of helping people to... Um, I, I don't like the word cope with their life better. I'm actually, we really should be saying to help people feel more comfortable about living their life and being happier about living their life, then I think that's a legitimate use of the technology. But anyway, you were going to sum up the three things for Tim. Sure, so many ideas now, but yeah, so Tim... Um, I, I guess there it's bring awareness to the area, apply a calculated stress to that area that's that's only slightly beyond the current range, and then on the exhale, learn to learn to breathe out into that and to to lengthen on each exhale. And if you find that you could go further, take another breath, hold steady, and then go for a further breath. While you're breathing out, do some further movement. But, and the key thing, the key, the absolutely key thing, which is actually a new part of our work, it's only probably a year old now, is every time before you're about to restretch something, do check in to see whether your tummy is tight or not. 99 times out of 100 it will be. And by just letting it go soft, which of course is the antithesis of the buff body, right? So there's this, this other thing happening in the mind here. Let yourself go, apart from whatever you're using as tension to hold yourself in the position that a stretch requires all other tension let it go completely let your tummy go soft if you're working with someone ask them to press your tummy gently and you'll, you'll be thinking that you're relaxing but as soon as you feel someone pressing on your tummy you'll think oh actually yeah, I can relax more the, everything that you can do to relax more including using the relaxation scripts at another time will help this project so I've actually used your relaxation scripts uh, you have one for back pain that I've been listening to every night and uh, yeah it is fantastic and it is a skill that you you get better at and I think uh, initially it is frustrating when um, you expect it to be an easy task but actually because it's not something that we're used to cultivating it it does take some time but I've been getting better over the months. Good. Well, look, let me just make a brief side comment on that. Our species, talking now about Homo sapiens, we are the result of thousands of generations of mammals who were immensely capable at mobilising the fight or flight response. And we are on the planet even now with the supreme killers. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, but it's also real. It's true. Human beings are always at war with one another. The things that humans seem to be able to do the most effectively is kill other human beings, etc., etc. But here's the thing. That's a sympathetic nervous response, as you know from your study. And up until now, there has never been a powerful reason to develop the opposite response called the relaxation response, and that's mediated through the parasympathetic nervous system, as you know, which literally switches all of those switches in the other direction. It is not natural for human beings to be relaxed. I, I agree with that completely, but I will also say that being able to relax when you want to is simply another skill which you can develop. We, we say if, if you want to be able to relax, you've got to commit yourself to practicing for a month, but then we say if you're really serious about making a change to yourself, you've got to practice for three months. If you do daily practice of those relaxation scripts for three months, you will literally be a different person at the end of that period. Something so I've been considering doing actually is just 
substituting out my daily meditation practice just for three to six months and just doing the yoga nidra, the, the progressive relaxation, um, yes. and then maybe coming back to the other practices later. I don't know what your thoughts are yes. on that. I, I think that's extremely wise. And, and let me just um, enlarge the context of this conversation because many of your listeners are <clears throat> people who do um, powerlifting or other sorts of lifting like Olympic lifting or bodybuilding. Anyway, some kind of strong resistance training. And some of your students also are involved in gymnastic strength training, right? Sure. I think that's correct, isn't it? So what we say to people, is, I mean, you can imagine all the people that come to our workshops, especially the stretch therapy for performance workshops, they are all interested in, in improving their range of movement. They want to be able to do those key um, posi end positions like pancake or pike or full back bend and all those kinds of things. And so what they've learned is that they can't actually progress their um, movement skill work beyond a certain point because they simply don't have the range of movement or they don't have the capacity to activate the muscles on the inside of the joint to further compress the movement or further tighten up the movement. And so they say, well, how are we going to work this new training into our existing strength training? And for many people, it would be a much, much better solution to do strength training of any sort once a week only and do the two other training sessions that they're doing or however many that they're doing, concentrating on movement and mobility. The, the one strength training session a week will maintain at least 80% of wherever you are now. I know the research doesn't support this, but I absolutely assure you this is true. We've, we've coached thousands of people and this is their experience. If you do one strong strength training session a week, you can maintain a significant fraction of your best ever strength. And in the meantime, you then do other mobilization or limbering, we call it, um, and, and perhaps one or two strong stretching sessions a week on your worst areas. And the progress that you'll make, once you get past that three months or six months and you go back to doing your ordinary strength training and the, then use the flexibility work as a kind of a maintenance thing, so you turn the these priorities around, your progress in the strength training will be phenomenally faster. This is something that, <clears throat> a lesson that I've been very glad to have learned over the last couple of years, is that even if you do have to pull back on the strength training for some time due to injury or whatever, it comes back. And the, the fear of mm. not being at peak performance all the time is completely irrational. And as yes. our friend Mark pointed out, who's a strength coach for the Edinburgh rugby team, he said there is no other type of athlete apart from powerlifters that expect to be performing at maximal loads all the time throughout throughout the year and saying that actually yes. we should be taking a complete off-season doing stuff that is yes. non-spinal loading related entirely, you yes. know, swimming and single leg work and yoga and all that stuff, and then Absolutely. come back to it. Absolutely. Look... Um, that guy, I can't remember where he come from, is he Romanian or Czech, I'm not sure, Tudor Bomper, B-O-M-P-A, the author who wrote the original book Periodization. Oh, okay. A, a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. He talks about microcycles, mesocycles, cycles, and macrocycles. Everything in this world operates on cycles. It's only the human ego that wants to be performing at top levels all the time. It's ridiculous. You know, what's the, what's the good book say? We have a time to sow and a, and a time to reap. And, uh, you know, That's it, everything but it's, goes it's so easy to get sucked into the, the yes. PB mindset every time yes. from session yes. to session, not actually looking at the big picture, for sure. 
Something you mentioned yeah. as well, Kit, about the relaxation response. Um, I just uh, listened to an audio summary of it the other day, and uh, interesting. I didn't realize that it was it was discovered in the same building as the scientist who came up with the stress response or the fight flight response. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty cool. That, isn't, that, isn't that fun? Yeah, excellent. So you also said something about the the world conspiring to um, steal your attention span or to to take your attention away from what's going on inside. I can't remember yeah. if it was you that mentioned this last time, but it was uh, someone said this comparison of the average adult attention span from say 1990 to the current day, and it's something like 14 minutes, and now it's like 11 seconds. It's absolutely. I was going to say. It- I was going to say, it won't even be 14 seconds. I mean, if you watch how people... Well, there's been many studies done on this recently, but watch people's clicking activity. If something is not happening within the first few seconds, you click away to something else. Well, look, Abraham Lincoln... and We're going back a long time now, but Abraham Lincoln, when he was doing um, his stump performances to try and get elected, you know, when he was trying to get become president of the United States... He would speak, or his opponent would speak. Firstly, people walked everywhere in those days. So, so farmers, these people who were flogging themselves, you know, working from dawn to dusk every day, they would walk 10, 15, 20 miles to a town hall to listen to these guys speak. The opponent would speak for four hours without notes, and then Abraham Lincoln would reply without notes to the points that he made in his... So we're talking eight hours... <laughs> conversation i mean what a monster people today simply cannot conceive of what that might feel like and we're these these farmers walk and their wives walk all of these miles or road horses most of them walked and they were still capable of maintaining that attention they thought that was important enough to actually sacrifice rest for that look yes it's and look it's not just it's not just facebook there, I in Singapore recently, and also in London here now, which is where I am, we are seeing an increasing number of people, instead of walking and strolling around and actually being aware of their surroundings, I'm sure you've seen this a million times, now it's common to see people walking along, holding a phone, only peripherally aware of the people, the crowd that they're Right in. into a lamppost. <laughs> right into a lamppost. I mean, we just hope it happens more often. I know it sounds very cruel. <laughs> it is cruel. Um, but I remember that famous video of that um, African-American woman who was reading something on her phone and who walked into a fountain. It, it went viral. I think there's time. quite a few, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's just so funny, but it's sad and funny. But what is interesting to me is we, Olivia and I were in New York last year and we were having dinner in one of those sports bars. This exemplifies what I'm talking about and what you're talking about. There were six people who had come from a local business. They all had their, you know, their T-shirts on. Six people had come for a drink and something to eat after work. It can be a little social atmosphere. Each person was on their phone to someone else who wasn't there. And then every now and again, if they found something particularly funny or interesting on Facebook, they'd laugh and show their phone to the other people at about that speed and then go back to the conversation. The, they were together but completely absent from one another. To me, this seems absurd. I think there was a study saying that uh, social interactions are rated as less authentic or, or less um, is less connection, mm. even if a phone is on the table in sight but not in use. And then obviously yeah. if it's in use, it drops even further. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and, and so and so. Sorry, go ahead. And so here's the here's sorry now I've interrupted you. Forgive me, but the key thing is this: at some point, each of us has to wake up and say, "Shit, what, what actually do I want from my life? What do I want? Life isn't just something that happens to you. It's actually what happens when you're not paying attention to it, and then you describe that this is my life. No, it doesn't have to be like that. The question that we ask all of our students at, at, at different junctures is, at some point, what do you want? What do you want? And for many people, when you ask them that question, it's a terribly confronting question, isn't it? Because most people have no clue. But the mere asking of that question provokes all sorts of internal things starting. So Jordan Peterson point, talks about this, where he says that um, people are afraid to set specific goals because as soon as they do, that immediately sets up a criteria for failure and no one wants yes. to have to face that. So they would rather have an open-ended idea of what success yes. means to them so that there's no chance of having to fail. And, and Yusuf, the tragedy of this is it's a complete misunderstanding of the learning process because, and I know that you know this, you learn more from failing or learn more about what doesn't work by trying something and then coming to a point saying, okay, that didn't work, that's fine, no problem. Yes, you could look at it as failure, but that's only because our system is set up to reward only success. But the real learning in this life, in everyone's life, this has always been the case and it will always be the case, no matter what spin you put on the process, it's only when you play with things and tinker with things and you find out, oh, that is not giving me the result that I want, okay? Just put that aside, have a think about how, well, here I am, I'm at this point here, I want to get to there. What other options can I generate that might take me part of the way there and try it and if it doesn't work, you try something else. That's how learning actually happens. It is nothing like the myth, the story of, of learning that we get given in schools where we're only rewarded for being successful. That's ridiculous. Mm. We should be pleased, immensely pleased when we fail because we now have a certain understanding that that route, that road, that path, that technology, that technique is not effective for me right now. That's gold, man. Well, learning is it's always a painful process. You know, you have to destroy your existing axiomatic structures to, to create yeah. new ones. And so even small lessons are painful to learn, but it was, I think, again, Jordan Peterson saying the larger the, the structure that has to be destroyed, the more painful the learning process. And if you find that your yeah. partner is cheating on you, then there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to crumble and be rebuilt to re recreate your perception of reality, because clearly yeah. the one that you'd built wasn't correct. And, and in fact, I mean, the Buddhists are eloquent on this subject. Absolutely everything you think in your mind is not actually true. <laughs> I mean, of course, of course, uh, we're talking to each other on Skype, so we're 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 assuming that the you know, the, the long chains of, of reasoning that have led to the development of the technology that we're using <clears throat> are not suddenly going to change in the next heartbeat. But but if they do, I'll call you back. Do you know what I mean? What I'm talking about and what you're talking about, and I don't actually agree with you about um, learning having to be painful. That makes it sound so negative. I and I'm. I'm I'm complete. I'm being completely honest with you. I'm not putting a Pollyanna spin on this at all. For me, I love failing, and I, I don't mean that in a stupid, silly way. Of course, um, if something really goes wrong, like I trip and fall down the stairs and, and break something, I'm not going to be elated with glee about that. 
But the difference between my approach to all of the things we're talking about and most other people that I come in contact with is that I don't have any illusions about... I, I think I, that's I, it. It's, it's proportional to how rigid your existing structures are yeah, and how painful yeah, it would yeah. be to break them down. And if you don't have yeah. um, too much emotional investment yeah. in those existing paradigms, then learning is a flow. I'm ac- yes, I'm actually paying attention, Yusuf, to what's actually happening. Not what I think is happening. This is the, the key. As such, you, you've got a meditation practice, and I'm sure many of your, um, many of our listeners will have practices like that, or at least be thinking that that would be something good to engage in at some point. Well, my my strong recommendation would be to engage in it right now, or today anyway, and just put aside five minutes. You don't need to do much. Even five minutes of sitting still and doing nothing is immensely rejuvenating. It's hard to... I know that the mind contemplating that statement will say something like, oh God, five minutes can't be any use at all. It can't have any effect, it's not long enough. That's the mind's perception of what the experience will be. It's not actually what happens if you sit down for five minutes and do nothing. And so, most, most of us are living this life by projecting our mind's model of the future into the immediate or medium future or we have a model of ourselves, a view of ourselves which is constrained by all the things that have happened to us in the past and that model is controlling your experience of now. Both are false. If you can actually take a breath, relax completely and try to see and experience with as little filtration as possible, what's actually happening now, you will start to see more clearly. And this too, just like relaxing, is just a habit. Most of us have a stronger engagement with the processes between our ears and we mistake what our thoughts are for reality. We think, we think, we believe, not think, we believe that our thoughts are reality. They are not. Reality? is conditioned by your thinking process to an immense degree. That's actually what this tattoo is about on my arm. We've spoken about this before. Can you see the tattoo? Um, sure, I don't know if you can see it, but it's in Sanskrit, okay. or Pali actually, but they look very similar. Um, in, the, in the Buddhist system of thinking, and this is completely different to our Western perspective on this, the mind, that, that's the first line of the Dhammapada, one of the most famous sutras, in the Buddhist world, and the first line says, the mind is chief, then the next line, among the senses. What that means is, even the way you see and the way you hear is being constructed and constrained by the mind. And so, the scientific fiction is that when we all look out the window, um, we have so many angstroms or whatever we measure wavelengths of light impinging on the retina, and, so the fiction goes, the mind will actually see what's on the retina. That's not actually what happens. I look out the window and I'm thinking about uh, chlorophyll action in green leaves or whatever. You look out the window and you see a pretty girl walking past. It's the same wavelength of light hitting the retina, but the mind is carving the reality it's experiencing up pre-conceptually. That's how deep this goes. And so so I'm, I'm skating over a lot of chasms here. The whole meditation project, it has one goal which is never spoken about clearly enough in my view. 
the goal is to see and experience reality directly. Now, no one does that, but that is actually the goal, and you can have glimpses of it, and everyone, most people have had glimpses of it. So the practice of meditation, and, and the many, many steps and sub-steps, and the many ideas that are used, being used to help you improve your practice, and I'll talk about that a bit more later, all of those things are actually about how to take the filters away, how to reduce the construction mechanism of the mind in, in its apprehension of reality. Now, look, I don't know whether we're getting to way too far off the topic here for, well, for the listeners, but all that... This is the literal literal translation of Vipassana, isn't it? Hmm. To, to see well, things Vipassana clearly. The, the problem, the, well, Vipassana, what does it mean literally? Um, let me just think, Pasati, to know. Um, I can't remember, it's not coming to my mind. I thought it was that, just that, to to see reality as it is, or... or that, that, that's a, a that's a transliteration, oh, okay. not the actual exact words. Um, I think, and look, well, let's just check. I'll I'll come back to you on that one because I have a friend who's a Pali scholar. Um, but vipassana, the term, is is what's used, or the or our expression in English, insight meditation, is is used to describe or to explain what the term vipassana means. But I think vipassana means to see or to know. It's one of the. It's 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 very close to what you said, and let us say, regardless of, and let's let's say there's some linguists in the audience who will tell us, no, no, we've got it completely wrong. Nonetheless, the gloss over the precise meaning of that, the, and the and the if you like the truth that sits behind the name Vipassana, or in my case, the speciality that I have is the, <coughs> the other wing of the bird of meditation called Samatha, um, because Samatha and Vipassana were both taught by the Buddha at the same time. But Vipassana has captured the Western imagination because it's actually a process done by the mind, whereas Samatha is a process done by the body. But my recommendation for most people is that Samatha is actually the better stream in the beginning because it's also about relaxation and connecting to sensation. I definitely agree. Well, I think throwing someone straight into Vipassana straight away is very hard to stay stay on track. I think you need yes. a basis of concentration first. Yeah. Yes, well, the, the, there's, a, there's a sutra called the Satipatthana Sutra. The first Satipatthana is the body, and Satipatthana means foundation of mindfulness. And so, this is the way that I've been taught and the way that we teach when we're teaching in monasteries in, in um, Malaysia, for example. <coughs> the body is with you all the time. You're sitting there listening to me talk. If part of your awareness is also feeling what's actually happening in your body, you know, breakfast progress and all the other things that are happening in the body, or maybe you've been sitting here for a bit too long and your bum's becoming a bit numb or whatever is happening. Part of your attention being in the body will ground you always. When we talk about being grounded, that's actually literally what we mean. It means being, instead of attention only being in on what's happening between the ears or the thought stream, actually experiencing what's happening in the body immediately brings you into the present because physical sensations only happen in the continuous, the unfolding present. You can't project physical sensations into the future, you can't project them into the past, they're only now. And so this is the reason why the Buddha spoke about using the body as the first foundation of mindfulness because one, it's there with you all the time, and two, it exists only in the present. That's immensely powerful. This is the basis behind your approach as well, <coughs> in that yes. you work into the body and then you generate more awareness that can be brought up into the mind. It's, so yes. one final thought, I guess, before we before we go way too off piste, is uh, 
just what you said about Abraham Lincoln traveling and listening to a talk for four hours and and it's that the instruction of meditation even the basics that you've described there I think in the world of the fact that this is one podcast of millions that people can listen to um, the information becomes so in high supply that we don't realize the value of, of a gift of being told something like that compared to hundreds of years ago where people would travel far and wide to listen to a third hand passed down instruction of someone saying watch the breath and that's all they would say and then they would go away and do it for for years because that information was so valuable that it was it was all they could access and whereas now i think people will they'll see stuff about meditation think okay i'll give it i'll give it a shot for five minutes i didn't do anything i don't feel enlightened okay (laughs) like sack this i'm just gonna do what i'm doing yeah that's it Look, I, I, really the, the, the key point of that, of what you just said, is that our expectations um, of immediate gratification, which of course are reinforced by the internet you know, 10,000 times a day, those expectations are unrealistic. If, if, for example, you, I don't know how old you are, let's say you're 30, let's say you're 30 years of age, you have spent, since you started to become aware of yourself, and let's say it's around 8 or 9 years of age, something like that, you have built up a formidable ego structure. And that tends to run the show in most people, especially when we're tired or, or frustrated or annoyed or, or, or whatever. Under pressure in any case, that tends to take over. A, a, a tiny, tiny glimpse of stillness allows you to pull back from the pressure and the force of that. So. The everything in your life or everything in everyone's life is is combining and and creating the effect of more and more urgency, shorter and shorter attention spans, a, f- a feeling of I've got so much more to do, I have to do this by the end of the day, I, and I'm, I'm feeling an immense amount of pressure because of X, Y and Z, and everyone can always tell you why they're upset or why they're whatever, but none of it is real. Literally none of it is real, and if and and the, the, in my view, at least anyway, one of the great values of a relaxation practice, and I put relaxation practice and meditation practice side by side. I don't privilege one over the other. Is basically to experience yourself directly, and when you do experience yourself, when you are in tune with what's happening inside your own body, you'll suddenly see while I'm not thinking about something, while my awareness is actually on what's happening in my body, in this exact moment there are no problems. Now that doesn't mean that, I mean, when people say that, critics will say, oh, you still got to pay the rent. Yes, of course you still have to pay the rent. And because of your past choices, like for you, for example, you're a resident now, the past choices that you made that have led to your current cycle of being a resident and the things that's happened to your back and so on and so forth, those things are real in that sense, but they're also not the only options available to you at any given time. When we're in a cycle, we always think, oh my God, I can't get out, I can't escape. That's not true. Even a small amount of relaxation or meditation practice each day will actually give you respite even while you're the busiest, I suppose, that you've ever been actually. You've convinced me. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna sub out my meditation practice for a while, and uh, <laughs> report back <laughs> with the results. Yeah, 
it, it will not. And the thing is, the 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 awareness that you bring to the relaxation practice and the way that that will change the mind's relationship to the body when you go back to practicing the meditation again formally sitting and all the rest of it it will just be that much clearer it, it's definitely not a misdirection it is the same project actually it's a different version of it look let me just I'll just touch on a couple of notes here and I'll be as brief as possible there's a sutra and my friend Patrick who's the Pali scholar has not been able to find it but the Buddha said there are two wings to the bird of meditation he's speaking about Vipassana and Samatha and then the next line is and the bird of meditation needs two wings to fly. It's so obvious when it's said that way. Having said that, the Satipatthana Sutta also talks about the different kinds of students. There are some students who are attracted to Vipassana, and that's perfectly sound. I think we should just clarify for the that. listeners, by the way, if you're wondering, mm. some other is concentration-based practices, so focusing on the breath, and Vipassana is what's commonly been termed mindfulness, where it's open floodlight focus on everything that passes through awareness. There are many, many different spins on Vipassana. Some is open awareness and some are, are much more narrowly focused. But yes, basically it's about observing the thought stream. But Samatha, S-M-A-S-A-M-A-T-H-A, Samatha is the part of the meditation project that the Tibetans took on and they call it karma-abiding meditation now. And they've developed the whole thing around that. But the the practices that are even more fundamental than that for Westerners, in my view at least anyway, are the relaxation practices which the yogis called yoga nidra, you referred to before. That's just a question of lying down with your palms facing up, or, or the, um, the shavasana, the course pose, as you know, and simply becoming aware of, and, and in our relaxation practices we direct awareness to the sensations of breathing or the movements in the body we call breathing, we also do visualization to different parts of the body. We also do different breath control techniques. We also do, sometimes we do some contractions and some relaxations in the early parts so people can feel the difference between tension and letting go of tension. They are guided visualizations which are designed, and they, they are effective in this very much. They're designed to allow you at some point to become aware, oh, I'm deeply relaxed now. That's what they're for. Some of them are short, some of them are 10 minutes long, some of the long, 40 minutes long. It doesn't matter which ones you're attracted to, which ones you do, and this is the, I'll now go back to the original sutta, it doesn't matter whether you do samatha or vipassana, or there's a couple of other methods that they talk about, um, they all lead to the same end point. That's the key. It doesn't matter which way you go. So if you find that you are attracted to one, not vipassana, over the other, no problem. Eventually the other thing will establish itself anyway. I don't want to get too technical about this because this is so far and away away from what we've said we're going to talk about, which is Tim's hip problem. Um, but it is all <laughs> it is all related. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, fine. Well, we can always take this section and 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 put it at yeah. the end after the after the FAQs. Um, sure. Yeah. I've uh, I've just finished a book by Daniel Ingram called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. This is a Oh. emergency medicine physician in America who'd spent 14 years doing intensive practice um, on and off around work and, and doing long retreats and became an, an arhant or enlightened um, having mm. having done that for, for so long and um, yeah it's a very rigorous and no bullshit book it's not exactly a literary masterpiece but it's mm. it's very um, very cutting and 
um, sort of quite dismissive of a lot of the tradition that comes with meditation. And he's very much about just stick with the practice. And he talks about, as you said, that. Let, um, let, let, let me interrupt sure. you because and hold on, hold on to that thought, please. This is this is tremendously important. Buddhism is a religion in Thailand. It's actually the state religion, the country's religion, but it's not a religion. The practice, as taught by the Buddha, is a, an absolutely, utterly empirical approach. He says this is just a method. If you practice it, and there's all sorts of things that can happen as you practice, and when this happens, do this, and when that happens, do something else. If you practice this, in the Satipatthana Sutta, he describes the road as a one-way road. If you keep practicing, it will lead to this end point, as, you, as your author Daniel described, and it's inevitable. That's what people don't realize, and it's a system. You take nothing on faith. In fact, the Buddha was eloquent on this. Take nothing on faith. Don't even take what I say on faith. Simply, hear a set of instructions, try them, and see what happens to you. That's it. Now you... It, and I've had people, I've heard people on retreat say, oh, it can't be that simple. That's what the mind does. The mind's job is to create problems and come up with reasons why something won't work. Forget all that. And as, you're, as Daniel says, just sit down and do the practice. Of course, that's not exotic enough for a lot of people. <laughs> I think that's exactly it. <clears throat> and he talks about the pitfalls people fall into or <clears throat> things that their minds do to take them to do anything anything but the practice and he says even on 10-day retreats he says there are people who will sit there and they're basically comparing robes and incense and just steeping in their neuroses and using the guru as a psychotherapist rather than and, he, and he's like he said i was sat there at one point i just shouted out like is anybody actually doing the practice or are we all just sat here fucking masturbating so um it's uh, yeah i i if i'd been there i just would have clapped look look this is so absolutely spot on a very famous um, Tibetan Rinpoche Trogum Chumpa Rinpoche you've probably heard of heard of him he wrote a book called Spiritual Materialism mm -hmm. and so unfortunately in our world way too many people are at the robes and incense and chanting stage and they've, they've got the right purba, you know those triangular knives that the Tibetans use in their rituals and, and they've got all the gear they know all about it they know all about the practices they can talk about the practices for hours but but Yusuf, if the practice has not changed you at a fundamental level, you level, you've been wasting your time. That's spiritual materialism. Spiritual materialism is knowing all about a practice, and yet it has not changed you. If 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 you're doing any practice, and this goes for flexibility, it goes for strength training, meditation, relaxation, anything. If it's not being effective, and there are all sorts of ways we can assess effectiveness you're doing the wrong practice or you're not doing the practice most times you're not doing the practice as the instructions are given that's all all the gear and no idea and we see the same in powerlifting as well for example I where know. you get people that have got all the latest sleeves and expensive belts and singlet and all yeah, this yeah. you're like what are your lifts and they're terrible and yeah. you just think maybe do away with all of the expensive stuff and just follow yeah. a single progression program for three years five years and then come back yeah. and earn the right to get the equipment and to worry about daily undulating periodization and all this stuff oh i could not agree more look i i i'll just give a a, a brief story from my own life 
there was a period at, at some time, I think it was about 10 years ago now, I think I mentioned this to you in another conversation, but I, I was struck down by a mystery virus. I still don't have any idea what it was. But I was in intensive care for 10 days and my C-reactive protein scores were over 325. I was oh extremely, extremely ill. Now the doctors who were doing their best that they could to treat me at the time afterwards told me that for most patients, if you get C-reactive protein scores of over 325, which are measures of internal infection, you die from multi multiple organ failure. Now I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what I was told. But here's the thing. When I came out of that experience, and, and no one ever did find out what the virus was, and I, and I recovered, but, but I spent the next six months doing nothing but sleeping. I slept and ate, and Olivia looked after me. And then, so now we're talking about seven months up to the day almost from when I was struck down by the virus, when I was carted off to hospital, I went into the heavy weights room, the, the Olympic lifting room at the ANU, the, the gym that I was working at and where we ran our classes, and empty bar sitting on a squat rack, so 20 kilos. I got underneath the empty bar, I did four, four reps of the full back squat, and that flattened me for a week. Wow. Four reps of the empty bar. This is true. This is true. I, I promise you I'm not making this up. I was, I, I'd gone from my body weight before the, the infection was about 85 kilos, and I'd gone down to 63. That happened in two weeks, by the way. Okay, huge. Massive. So then six months later, still now I'm about, I'm a, a kind of a flabby 68, I think, completely weak because all I've been doing was sleeping. But I, I just felt, okay, now I have to do something. So I got back and I trained once a week only and I only did back squats and front squats. And I was in and out of the gym because my energy levels were so low. I was, they used to call me the phantom trainer because I'd be in and out while the other guys were warming up. But in that one year, and I promise you this is, I swear, this is true, my body weight went back up to over 90 kilograms and I managed my best ever front squat and best ever back squat, training once a week. And a very occasional second light workout, but when I, as I mentioned, when I came out of hospital, I weighed about 63 kilograms. By the time I went back to the gym, had that first workout uh, that laid me flat on my back for a week, the massive workout of 20 kilo back squats by four reps, um, my weight was probably 68. Anyway, in that year, doing only one workout a week and in very occasional weeks, and when I say very occasional, I mean like one week and six or eight, occasionally having a second workout, I managed to my body weight went up to over 92, 92 I think it was, and I was a bit fat, I, I acknowledge that, but I also recorded, and remember I'm an ex-Olympic lifter and, as well as an ex-powerlifter, I recorded my best ever front squat and best ever back squat ever in one workout a week. And you know, you'll read all the, the texts online and all the so-called experts online who will say that you can't possibly get, you know, really superiorly stronger on one workout a week. That's absolute nonsense. In fact, I remember when I was powerlifting and I had a guy coach me and he became a very well-known coach after um, some years after we had our interaction with one another. He and I also did only one, two or three hour workout every Sunday. So I remember you saying that they would describe you as the phantom, that you'd be in and out very quickly. And oh, in, in, this... in, in fact, in fact, I would be in and out. That's a really good point. Sorry, I, didn't, I neglected to, to elaborate on that. I'd be in and out while the guys were warming up. 
And when I say that, because I would start with a weight that's the right weight for me. And, and at that stage, when I was very weak, the right weight was the empty bar. Um, and I'd do normally normally between five and six sets, just progressively increasing the load each time. I'd be in and out of the gym in within 25 or 30 minutes without fail. Uh, I'd have a decent rest in between each set. And I would, all, because I was so sick at the time, I always made sure I left with gas in the tank. I think that's a mistake that a lot of us make is that when we feel strong, and I, I'm actually getting back to feeling stronger again, I'll talk about some of our other workouts in, in a moment. They're all bodyweight workouts while we're on the road. Olivia and I, we normally do something every day, or every second day at least. Um, but the, the feeling strong and being strong are actually the same thing. Our perception, when you get under the bar and you sort of take that weight onto, onto your upper traps, or I'm actually using a low bar technique at the moment, that's another story, um, and you actually feel what the weight feels like, and straight away you get feedback from the bar, I can do this, I can't do this, or this is going to be some really hard work, or you know, am I going to hit the, dot, the, the full bottom position today with ease or not? And all those things are proprioceptive feedback from the actual taking of the bar on your back. Anyway, feeling strong, which of course is the result of strength training, is actually what makes you strong, at least in part. We have to yeah, drill that, like, yeah. I think for, for strength yeah, specifically, yeah. very much supported by the data that um, training to failure isn't necessary. I mean, it, it is more so for bodybuilding, but just mm -hmm. something you mentioned before about um, being the, the kind of training with a low frequency and high intensity coming up yes. at odds with what the data supports or at odds with the typical rules of strength training. And there's a guy yeah. who a lot of our listeners will know, Martin Burkan, of leangains.com. Oh, I, I, I am a fan of his, in fact. Oh, okay, excellent. Reading, reading his website and his extraordinary um, descriptions of how he used to suffer with cutting back, both Olivia and I, the first meal of the day is lunchtime. And the last meal of the day is well within that eight-hour window that he recommends. So the, normally we would be eating dinner when the sun goes down. So we only have two meals, don't snack, and you know our body, well, my body fat is as low as it's been for many years. For sure, I mean it works works very well for adherence. And I think the the point I was going to make was just about his training, in in that he trains in a way that is typically wrong for a bodybuilder. Um, yes. But the physique that he's built is from two or three times a week training with a very high intensity, doing low yes. volume work. Yes. But yes. he claims that's because of his psychological profile that he's able to to train at a higher intensity than most of his clients would, and so he doesn't train with the same frequency. Um, that's absolutely accurate, and in fact my experience is the stronger you get, and or the higher intensity you can make yourself use, the more recovery you need. Because you're actually, if we, if we think of the fight or flight mechanism, you're actually eating more deeply into your reserves of adaptational energy, if you can do that. Now the majority of people, and we see this in the gym all the time, now I'm not talking about a powerlifting gym, I'm talking about a bodybuilding gym. Guys that go in there and literally have the same workout, they'll be in there three, four, five times a week and they do not change in a year. But they're, but they're having a great time, it's a great social activity and they're making friends and you know, showing off their pecs and biceps usually to the, you know, the girls that are in the gym. All of this is totally legitimate, but my view is my view is that one needs to be clear about what one is doing in the gym. And if you are clear about what you're there for, and in my case I was, it was about basically getting my life back, 
You want to be in and out as quickly as possible without actually rushing anything. And, and the research does support my next contention or my next claim, which is your testosterone levels plummet after about 40 minutes. 40 minutes of intense exercise. Now, having said that, we need to make some um, provisos here because the way, the way powerlifters train and Olympic lifters train typically is not the same as what I'm talking about now. Your average powerlifter, if he or she is training on a heavy day, they will have at least five minutes in between sets, right? right. I don't know how Are you train, sure? but that's not <coughs> Yeah, three to five minutes. Th three to five minutes. And so what, when I talk about um, 40 minutes of intensity after which the testosterone levels drop, you have to add all of those sets up. You, you can't count the three to five minutes as part of that. So does that make sense? And so the average set lasts about a minute, right? A minute and a half maybe. And sure. So, and, so, and so for powerlifting and Olympic lifting, 10 sets in a workout is normal. It's just completely normal and that's about roughly, I mean, it depends on the person and what they're doing and whether they're working on high rep back squats or whether they're working on triples, singles and double, whatever. Um, it, av the average thing is you, you have the experience in the body of working hard for 40 minutes or so, in my opinion, it's after that point, no matter how you've made that 40 minutes of intense activity up, that's the time you should be thinking about leaving the gym. Roughly. So it's interesting because the what what that conjures up is the um, the distinction between doing something because it's optimal or doing something because it reinforces your identity as yep. a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or or if or you sure. being in the gym, um, you know, being clear about your goal. And you said there's nothing wrong with wanting to go and show off your pecs and biceps if that's what you're into. But for me personally, and, and make, I don't and really make, like and gyms friends. and make friends. Sorry, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I. I find gyms quite a quite an unpleasant place to be in for a long time, and so yeah, as you said, I'd rather just be in and out. And you see it with powerlifters yeah, yeah. as well, where yeah. they they'll adopt the persona of powerlifter and grow the beard and listen to heavy metal and go for a McDonald's after the competition and all these things which aren't really furthering their their progress, but because it's all part of the identity, it's mm. kind of spun into this tradition. And no problem. That's the thing. No problem with that. Uh, I. Oh, I've had so many. I have so many close friends who are Olympic lifters and powerlifters, and some of them fit that mould perfectly. It's absolutely no problem at all. But, but in this conversation, what we're trying to, I guess, the the subtext of everything that we've spoken about is actually being clear about what it is that you're doing in the moment of doing it. In other words, being mindful about your training, just the same as one is trying to be mindful about everything else. Again, without being obsessive about it. Um, my my goal was simply to get my health back, and I managed that in that year. And at the time when I was training with Stan Pienko, which was the time when I was powerlifting, and I made the, the best gains ever that I've made in any six-week period, we were doing a, a two to two and a half, occasionally three-hour session um, on Sunday, very leisurely pace, but absolutely everything done properly and perfectly. And the increases in my lifts, and I was a relatively mature athlete then, I would have been 20... Eight, I would say, 29, so not mature for a powerlifter, but relative. I've been lifting for many years at that point, we made phenomenal gains, and it was by not doing. Of course, the more mature an athlete is, the more rebound effect you can get by decreasing your load momentarily, even if the intensity and the actual weights that you're lifting are higher. It's, it's all intensity versus volume. You can't actually do both. It, no one ever can. For sure, and it's, yeah, it, it's why I think doing two sets to failure for example 
and ruining the subsequent sets and, yeah. and tanking your performance is actually a worse thing to yeah. do if because then you're sacrificing total volume in favor of just a single set that's hard and just to mm. feel like you've trained rather than actually um, have a measurable increase in volume session to session. But having said that, every now and again when you do feel like that, doing that is no problem at all. But instead of doing the, the eight or ten sets that you had in mind, you do the two or three sets at a much higher intensity and you think, right, I'm getting stronger, I can feel that, and you stop there. Oh, for sure. If now, it's done in the right yeah. point in the training cycle, definitely overreach and cut the volume. But um, yes. I think as long as it's planned out over a, over a wider yes. period... Yeah, I guess what we're really talking about here is the extent to which, and I've seen so many people do this, I mentioned this when we were talking once before, um, I had an Olympic lifting coach at one point who would literally remake my program for the day based on how I looked as I walked in through the, the, the heavyweight room door. Um, and that's a, you know, you have to have a real eye to see that kind of thing. And occasionally, you know, I'd be walking and I'd feel like crap and actually have the best the best lift, you know, of that month or sometimes even two months. You, you, can't, you just can't tell. But a good coach, if you have the, the luxury of having a good coach, you should really listen to what they say. And if they say, I know you're feeling great today, but my suggestion is back off and let's see if we can hit those marks next week or two weeks' time, my advice strongly is take that advice. But to be able to get your ego out of the way to, to take that advice yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so look, my suggestion is, I know we've got lots of things to talk about, I think we should go back to the questions and I will attempt to answer the questions briefly. Although I, I know you and I both know this, there really aren't any simple answers to complex problems, but we will make a show of trying to do that. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so, yeah, the next question was from Connie, saying, I got mm. injured because of imbalances in my body. I do physio exercises that target specific muscles and areas in spite of the fact that I can engage said muscles while doing these exercises. Once I try to engage them in normal activities or during sport, they don't fire. Is there a more intelligent way of training these weak or injured areas than the physio approach? Well, I don't want to cast aspersions on fellow practitioners, um, but I've worked side by side and parallel and separate to physiotherapists since I began my own clinic practice and like all practitioners there are really good ones and there are ones who are just what I would call journeymen and I, I'm, I'm reminded of a or journey women I'm reminded of a saying that was popular in Japan when I was living there which is beware the artisan who claimed 20 years of experience in his field when in fact it's one year's experience repeated 20 times so my advice to Connie is if those exercises are not working and are not transferring um, to your other activities and you're still continuing to get injured, the root cause has in fact not been addressed or dealt with at all, probably not even identified. Let me give you an example. Let's say Connie's a sprinter. I don't know whether she's a sprinter or not. Um, if you do not have loose enough hip flexors, you will be continually liable to pull your outer hamstrings because the outer hamstrings are the only muscles that can pull the legs behind the body when you're trying to sprint and if your hip flexors are tight the reciprocal inhibition reflex will be switching the glute off at the very moment it's supposed to be extending the hip joint. You may well be able to do step ups and all the other activities that activate the glutes in that part of the range of movement but when you get to extension if the hip flexors are tightening I guarantee you your brain will shut the glutes off 
There's no way around that apart from loosening the hip flexors. I mean, you know this, I, I'm sure. Um, if, getting back to the first part of Connie's question, in my experience as a clinician, the most important imbalances to redress in the human body, and this applies to flexibility, it applies to strength, it applies to coordination, it applies to um, left and right handedness, left and right leg-edness, is redressing any asymmetries that you find in that left-right axis sense. Front-back is different. Different rules apply in that plane. But in the plane between the shoulder blades, the plane of the body, as you look at the body, certain functions derive from the structure of the body as you look at it, front and back, and they should be symmetrical, assuming you've got the same length legs. And that's another thing, as you know, I have quite a significant leg-leg difference. <coughs> that needs its own treatment. But the key rule here is any left-right differences you find in strength or range of movement must be redressed. And the way they're addressed is unilateral strength training for arms and legs. And of course, most of those unilateral exercises are also core exercises. So when one is doing things like one-arm push-ups or single-leg squats or all the other things that one can do um, unilaterally, you are also always and inevitably strengthening the core as well. So again, doing the right exercise, there are so many things you don't need to think about. And on that note, I would say the right exercises are always the most difficult ones. So getting back to Connie, supposing you have a left-right imbalance in shoulder flexibility or hip flexibility, you have one tighter hip flexor on one side or one tighter hamstring on one side. <clears throat> and as a side note, a, a looser or tighter hamstring is, is an effect, not a cause. We'll talk about that another time. These are just ways into reading how the body is using itself, really. You need to look at your feet and see whether you've got callousing on the inside of your feet versus the outside. If you do, your ankles pronate under load and you carry more of the weight of your body on pronating ankles and that will definitely lead to long-term damage of the medial side of the knee in time and can have its own effect on the hip joints. So, in short, the, the most important considerations are left-right hip flexor length and strength, left-right hamstring length and strength, left-right lateral flexion of the spine, and left-right rotation of the spine. They are the key functions to pay very close attention to. And if you cannot activate your glutes in the hip extension range of movement, you must do our hip flexor exercises and please link to the free ones on YouTube. We don't have any inner secrets in our system, as you know. The, one, the, the hip flexor exercises on YouTube are still the best hip flexor exercises we know. And we work with elite people, dancers, gymnasts, all sorts of different people who do think they're already flexible. But you, you know from your own experience, once you put the body in that hip flexor stretch position and we've got three or four grades of difficulty of that exercise, there is no escape. <laughs> the, hip, the hip flexors have to let go. And it's, it's just so liberating. In fact, I'll just say one, one um, side comment on that is that most of the tension that people experience in their own spine and neck is actually parasitic tension, but it's necessary parasitic tension because the hip flexors are too tight. If you have an anteriorly tilted pelvis, it is absolutely necessary that the erector spiny muscles and the paravertebrals and all of your neck extensor muscles must be generating extra tension simply to hold you upright. And your body will do this absolutely automatically. The alternative is to go through life leaning forward, and people just don't do that. If you've got a lumbar extension, you will have parasitic tension. And we've just had so many people on the workshop do the hip flexor stretch, and we do it in the afternoons now, not the mornings, 
and they'll get up off the floor and they'll say, oh, that's amazing. I, that tension I have in my neck is gone. Everything's straightened exactly. up. Exactly. Exactly. The, your hip flexor stretch, the partner version, is my, one of my favorite things. The, one of my top three stretches from you. The others being Me. the pec minor partner stretch oh, with a broomstick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> amazing. The one. <clears throat> well, in fact, those two, if you think about it, are tied together, aren't they, in a functional sense? Take a step back. Human beings, bipedal mammals, um, always, when you're on your feet, you're always seeking balance. No such thing as standing still. Any, any guardsman who's, any Buckingham Palace guards will tell you, no such thing. We're constantly moving. Anyone that's done handstand practice knows we're constantly adjusting and moving. That is the disadvantage of the bipedal stance versus a quadrupedal stance. But it also has phenomenal advantages too. It gives you agility and speed and capacities to do movement which other animals can't do and so on and so forth. Um, so something anyway. I should mention as well uh, to Connie is to mm. check out Kit's book on back pain. If the if yes. the issue you're talking about relates to back pain, there's a full DIY assessment and treatment, and it's very practical. And it goes over left, right, and balances, how to measure your leg length differences, mm. and a flow chart yes. for how to arrive at the correct stretches for you. Um, there's also yes. another book on general stretching, which um, addresses the other the other joints as well. Mm. Um, I would like to know, in order to answer Connie's question more effectively, perhaps the next time we speak, we actually need to know what the nature of the injuries are. And, and uh, well, if, if let's say, just I'm extemporizing here, but if in fact it is outer hamstrings, <coughs> which are such a common problem in athletes, then I would put my money on tight hip flexors for the reasons we went through. But if it's something else, if it's... Um, well, the other, the, in order of frequency of, of, or likelihood of, of frequency, and of course whether this applies to Connie or not, as you know from your studies of statistics, we can't actually say, um, even though people love to say things like, you know, 50% of the population have a leg length difference. It's statistics 101 tells you that that actually tells you nothing about the next person who walks in your clinic door. They're either in that group of 50% or they're out that, outside of that group of 50%. And the tendency, the movement, the mental movement from... Um, correlation to cause is just so so common in science and it's, it's a fundamental error as you know anyway so we would need to know more about the specificities of her problem and we we can make some suggestions on what are the most likely causes even if they turn out not to be the actual causes cool so i think that's a good starting point for connie anyway <clears throat> now on a similar note um the question this is a question from me kit that mm. uh uh, there's a guy, he's a strength coach called Chris Duffin, and he has this idea that, and it works pretty well with his athletes, that sometimes what we consider to be a lack of mobility is actually a lack of stability. And the example that he uses is in a squat where somebody might have the passive range of motion in their hip for, say, internal rotation and flexion, but when they go into a squat, they lose it. And his idea is that because this functional lack of mobility is actually not bracing the abs correctly and allowing the, the hips to not be under a state of threat and so they can actually move through that range properly. Um, I'm sure you've, you're familiar with, with this idea. Is this anything that you... Do you use any stability training in light of this with your own athletes? Uh, the only stability training that we do... <coughs> excuse me. ...is actually looking at how their knee tracks when they step up. So we, and we won't, don't even use a high block. I mean, we would normally, for someone who's a beginning strength trainer, 
because our hope, of course, and it's an unjustified hope, is that someone whose experience has actually sorted all this shit out, but they don't, of course. This is something we can return to. We ask someone to uh, come up on the ball of the back foot, put the front foot on a, a step of, let's say, 12 inches of height or so on, and without using the back leg to push off, step up onto the block. It's so hard. What we do is we just, it's much harder than people think. Um, and what we're looking for is medial knee movement. Medial knee movement, far and away, is the most common um, effect in the body. And if that is happening in your body, you must apply <coughs> another frog in my throat. This is the problem with talking first thing in the morning, right? Just hang on a tick. That's better. Um, we know that the medial knee movement in the step-up action is caused, cause, again, such a loaded term, but it, the, the, the function that happens is the adductor strength momentarily is stronger than the external rotation counter-rotation, or it's not sufficiently cued, or the pattern is not sufficiently embedded in the body so the brain automatically engages the external rotators as you step up, and that's probably the most common explanation. And as a result, as the force of the glutes is applied to the thigh, the knee tracks medially. But here's the thing, it is such a simple thing to fix. You put the person in the block stepping up position in front of a mirror and you say, concentrate your awareness on your knee and do not let it move medially. There is no one that can't get that sensation right in half a dozen reps. So yeah, I suppose the answer to a lot of these things is, is to actually build the awareness to find where you are not stable and distinguish uh, then it, whether it's stability Yusuf, or mobility. Yusuf, when we teach strength training, we have a monkey gym stream, as you know, we're just not teaching it at the moment. Um, the first thing we say in class one is we're going to teach you about awareness. And the guys who are interested in building up their biceps will say, what the fuck, I'm not interested in awareness, I just want the guns. We say, okay, if that's what you want, the, the closer connection you have to the sensation of how to use your biceps rather than your lats, say in a pull-up, or how to maximize the engagement of, of and biceps brachii over brachialis and, <coughs> and, and radio, brachioradialis, the stronger and the quicker you can strengthen the biceps. Well, listen to any high-level bodybuilder, that's, that's all they talk about. Oh, look, my friend Tom Platts, he said in the film that I made about, remember the Arnold Schwarzenegger film I directed, The Comeback? Um, he said, your mind is in the muscle. Now, Tom was an absolute expert at doing this. If you watch him do leg extensions, and there's some fabulous footage in that film of his 28-inch quads extending this relatively minor weight, I'm just, his, they were amazing to see. <laughs> almost a, they're almost a life force of their own. Anyway, um, getting back to the, the, the problem tracking. Or, or the problem of stability versus the, 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 your, the coach that you refer to, his, his perception is accurate. You simply cannot, if your body feels unstable, it's almost impossible to activate those muscles voluntarily because the body's in protective mode. And you have to have the willpower of, you know, a Martin Birkins to actually overpower that, that re reflexive, deeply hardwired action. So what you do, and this is a very fundamental thing that a lot of coaches actually don't get right, in my opinion, um, when someone who's, let's say someone has a strength capacity of X, if you're trying to teach them a new motor pattern, which is effectively what we're talking about, and now the, specific, the specifics of the, of the movement are not important, this applies to all new motor patterns, 
you have to use a resistance that's much, much, much smaller than X so the person can feel what's happening in their body. So getting back to the, you know, we teach awareness thing and this will, apply, uh, re, uh, will connect directly to what I've just said. I, in my first presentation to our beginning weight training students, I'll say, look, let me just show you. And I jump up on the, on the chin-up bar and I'll say, look, watch this. This is a chin-up that's done completely using only arm muscles. And I'll, I'll, do, I'll pull my chin to the bar, close grip, um, and it's obvious that the muscles in my back are almost completely relaxed. And then I'll say, okay, now watch this. By organizing the muscles in a particular way, leaning back and thinking about pulling my elbows to my waist instead of thinking about pulling my chin to my hands, Watch this, all of a sudden, the lats pop out, and now it's a back training exercise. And so I say to the guys who just want the big biceps, so unless you have the capacity to voluntarily contract muscle X versus muscle Y, I said, you're just flying blind. And this is how, you, you know, so many bodybuilders who don't have good back muscles but have fabulous arms, when you watch them pulling, whether it's a, you know, a seated row or or whether it's a, a standing version of the seated row, they're pulling with their arms and not with their back muscles. That has to be cued. In some people, that absolutely has to be cued. So uh, on the note of building awareness then, we have a question from James saying, are there any enhancements that you would recommend to build awareness? And he's mentioned using psychedelics or MDMA, which I think is a bit of a sledgehammer approach, <laughs> but um, is, there anything, is there anything else along that spectrum that you would, you would advise? Um, <laughs> well, no, no, uh, no. There's no chemistry I can recommend. Um, although I have to say to a, fr a friend of mine who has done immense amount of practical experimentation in this area, claims that MDMA is the secret to acquiring um, one's potential flexibility rapidly. But I have not experimented with this myself, and the main reason is very simply that I don't know of any reliable MDMA supplies. <laughs> so, and so, and how, what? How are you possibly going to dose yourself up on stuff where you don't actually know what's in what you're putting in your mouth? I, I personally will not do that. Just the same as I don't eat processed food. I'm not a fanatic about it, but the centre aisles of the supermarket I stay out of. I only eat from the aisles on the outside. It's funny, actually. It's, it's the same reason why I don't take drugs or steroids is more of a quality control issue than a moral yeah. issue per se with, Absolutely. with the drugs. Absolutely. Yeah, so... Um, in, de in terms of developing awareness, speaking to James now, there is no trick to developing awareness. If you, let me just illustrate from the many meditation workshops that I've taught. This is a typical person reporting his or her experiences following a meditation session. But first I'll give you a thought experiment. You, you're sitting in front of a hall, you're watching a hall of 50, 60, 70 people. It's a typical kind of retreat number. They're all sitting there. They've got their hands in the sort of recommended meditation position. Their eyes are half closed in the, in the recommended, you know, relaxed gaze position. And then what, this is what happens. They'll sit there and the next thing you know, the head bobs like this. And then a few more seconds goes by, 10, 15, 20, head bobs like this. And then if you ask, that goes on for 40 minutes. And then, you, and then if you debrief that person following the session, how was your, well, how, tell me about your sitting fantastic they'll say it was absolutely fantastic what was actually happening is they were falling asleep and the stretch reflex was waking up repeatedly throughout the 40 minutes they actually spent most of the time asleep and I, and you have to take this on faith if you're not an experienced meditator it is absolutely possible to fall asleep and dream that you're meditating and maintain your posture i promise you this is possible so in and 
the meditators in contrast who feel that they're not meditating well they'll report things like oh look I was sitting there but oh, I was just so distracted I was trying to bring my awareness to the breath and then I noticed straight away that I started thinking about Aunt Merle and, and I, I said no I'm just going to gently corral my awareness and bring it back to my breathing I took two breaths and then my attention went straight back to Aunt Merle and at the end of the meditation and process when they're reporting they'll say and so I feel I'm a complete failure and we Patrick and I were saying no 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 that's meditating to notice that you're distracted is absolutely the first fundamental part because the first group of people who felt they were meditating really well they did not even notice they were falling asleep noticing is actually what meditating is about awareness is nothing more than directing your attention to place A or place B or place C and noting when the attention is drawn away by the thought stream and it's always the thought stream or it can be some painful part of the body like a knee that doesn't want to sit in that position for any longer this That's is the, the, uh, the metacognizance and i'm sure anyone who's sat an exam and felt like it went terribly and then everyone else is like oh that was that was fine i was a piece of piss it's always the ones who thought it was easy that did worse because they don't know what they didn't know and so yes. yeah that, that's gold there my friend they did not know what they don't know and so coming back to James you cannot be aware of what you don't know that you're aware of it's the same it is exactly the same awareness is nothing more than paying attention to what's happening now and making sure that the attention is not sliding off into a daydream and that's why the Buddhists say life is a dream within a dream because for most people as I said this the other time that we were talking, and maybe this will make a bit more sense when I put it this way, for the majority of people we know, reality is the story that's going on between their ears. It is not what's actually happening. But the if your attention is completely caught up in the space between your ears, you have no alternative perspective. There is only the thought stream. And when that's running away with you, you will defend that very strongly, aggressively. That's that's normal human life, unfortunately. So anyway, to James, I do not recommend MDMA or LSD or ayahuasca or any other wonderful substances, unless you happen to come across a shaman who's actually practiced in the use of these things, and you can be certain that the source that you're playing with is sound. So what about more readily available stuff? So, so uh, caffeine, alcohol, um, morning versus evening, uh, after a hot bath, for example. Um, caffeine is wonderful. No one, in my view, should hop, go into the gym without having a decent, you know. Well, actually, long black, you probably know this from your chemistry studies, but long black coffees have much more caffeine in them than short black coffees. Short black coffee is the actual duration that the water is in contact with the coffee grounds for is much shorter normally depending on which way you make your long blacks i mean today they pull a short black and then add water to it my strong recommendation is to just pull that water all the way through so that the because the caffeine is actually relatively slower dissolving than many of the other caffeinols and caffeinoids you probably read this and so if you want a really strong cup of coffee you actually need to brew it for a, a reasonable length of time Okay, so, I'm I'm personally a bit of a coffee philistine. Um, I used to abuse caffeine <laughs> when I worked in an office and managed to sure. engineer um, seasonal affective disorder in myself. Apparently, it it, uh, it shuts off the vitamin D receptor, 
and uh, I didn't know that. That did anything. So, and I was working in in Edinburgh at the time, and you'd leave for work at seven in the morning, and it was dark, and you'd come home, oh. and it was still dark, and there was no win- windows in the office, and I realised that because I was nailing the caffeine and basically having no external vitamin D, mm. I just I stopped the caffeine, hammered a super dosed vitamin D for a few days, and very quickly all of the mood and sleep quality and sex drive and all the rest of it came back up again. So, um, yeah, thought that was interesting. So now I'm quite extremely interesting. I mean, vitamin D, um, um, we should mention this, but we, we pronounce that word vitamin. You guys pronounce the word vitamin. That does mean the same thing. Um, let, let me use your term terminology. Vitamin D is responsible. It seems to be a, a sufficient level of vitamin D seems to be necessary as a precursor to the manufacture of over 200 enzymes in the liver, I think. It's, it is phenomenally important, way more important, I think, than people thought previously. Uh, the, the problem with the, the whole vitamin idea is that, as you know, the, the requirement for something to be judged or described as a vitamin is very, very restrictive. There are many, many more phytonutrients, I mean, that are important, not just the 53 or whatever it is, vitamins. And the, the, the description or the, the test descriptor is this. The removal of a vitamin has to cause a disease and the re-addition of a vitamin to that person's diet has to be shown to cure the disease. That's an incredibly restrictive set of constraints, don't you think? Sure. And so there are over 10,000 phytonutrients and we're absolutely certain that many, many more of these are useful at a deep and powerful way, but they do not yet satisfy the vitamin constraints. That's a good, that's the roughest, crudest, broadest brush approach, it seems to me. I'm sure once the constraints are, are widened or, or as as people kind of heuristically get to the point where they realise the importance of these things, it'll, I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing a few consultants in, in hospital just up here that now put anybody on vitamin D when they come in um, just because the deficiencies are so rife and there's not really much of a side effect from, from high doses. So um, no, that just becomes their standard. Look, you, you, you can tell straight away whether someone's likely to be vitamin D deficient. Are they as white as a sheet or not? Um, because the best way to get vitamin D and in exactly the amount that you need is to expose your body to sunlight for 20 or 30 minutes a day. Hello, Johnny here. Just a short interruption to this episode. I know what you're thinking. This show was brought to you by none of that. Trust me. We have something completely free, something to give you today. So we're aware that you guys who've been listening to our podcast, you've heard before us talk about the show notes and other places to go to download things from propanefitness.com. But we want to give those of you who listen to our podcast something completely different, something completely unique that we don't provide anywhere else. So we want to give you something that is actually a membership area or a membership portal where we have loads of free goodies, some downloads, some things to watch, some trainings, and some free presentations that we want to give you all bundled together completely free. All you have to do is go to propanefitness.com forward slash gift. There's no email opt-in. There's no enter your email and receive this. It's completely obligation-free. You just enter your email, enter your username rather, and your password, and then you'll be sent login details. So completely free. In there, we have some training on the 3i formula. That's the framework that we use with all of our coaching students and loads of other free goodies. So that's propanefitness.com forward slash gift. Head over there now. Pick up your free training and we hope you enjoy. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode and we'll speak soon. So actually there was a um there's a talk I, I know we're going on a tangent again, but there was a talk from a dermatologist and 
GP, um, talking about the difference in heart disease from Scotland and Australia. And he was yeah. saying that the Australians like to think that it's because of their finer moral standing, although actually lifestyles are relatively comparable between Scottish and Australian mm -hmm. people. And he realized that a lot of it was because of sunlight yeah. exposure. And it's not just vitamin D mediated, but no. something to do with nitric oxide and how it has a vasodilating um, capacity and uh, saying that this could explain some of the differences in heart disease. And he said, because heart disease is such a common disease, it outweighs the risk of melanoma, for example, which although is a very oh. aggressive cancer, it's much less mm. common relative to heart disease. Oh, oh, I, I agree completely. Um, it's not just, I mean, this is a very, we're getting back to our old sort of John Grimmick era bodybuilding thing. Those guys cultivated a decent tan, and they would tell you, when I'm tanned, I feel better. I feel better. Now that's such a such a loose, imprecise, uh, how do you measure that sort of thing? I mean, our evidence-based medicine would have a lot of trouble with the concept of feeling well. I mean, and as you know, it does. That's one of its major problems. But those guys and girls, they were, they were convinced that a tan actually helped them in that way. And I'm not talking about the kind of, you know, super dark tan that, that the modern bodybuilders do now. These guys were just talking about getting a light tan. They'd exercise out of doors and it all just happened by itself. And on that note, Olivia and I have been exercising while we've been here in London. We, we go to Finsbury Park and there's an outdoor centre there. Most of the users of that outdoor centre are British Africans, most I think are from Jamaica from their accents, um, and there's a couple of Afro-Americans there as well. The friendliest, loveliest group of people on the planet. So it's, it's just so interesting to me that that divide, they welcomed us into their group straight away. And so we're doing our chin-ups and our front lever preps and, you know, German hangs and what else? Oh, multiple chin-ups and handstand push-ups and all that kind of things. And that's what they're all doing too. And guess what? Vitamin D. <laughs> We're having a good time meeting lovely people, having a strong workout. We then go for a long walk around the park either before or after that. And that's it. We're done. Done for the day. Sounds lovely. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. So I, and so just on that note, for people who are interested in bodyweight strength training, my own personal division into the kind of work that I'll do is I'll do vertical pushing and pulling, which are variations on supported handstands, various handstand activities, negative handstand push-ups, positive handstand push-ups using wall support, so that's all the pushing stuff, and only that one plane. And I intersperse that and complement that with all the vertical pulling exercises. Right, so um, chin-ups, pull-ups, front lever prep, all the things that are the heavy-duty pulling exercises, but nothing horizontal. Then I'll let a good day go by and I'll do something else. I might jump up and down on logs or something. Who knows what, whatever it is that I feel like. And the second workout for the upper body in that week will be horizontal pushing and pulling. Now, you can do all of that perfectly at a park. They've all got places where you can do push-ups of innumerable kinds. They've all got places where you can do horizontal pull-ups of innumerable kinds. And... For me, the vertical and the horizontal, that does the whole of the shoulder joint. And you don't need to think about anything. It's so much fun. Um, and then there's a whole stretching thing which happens in between doing all of those things. So it's a concentrated workout. Uh, it just feels marvellous to do. Both of us really love it. And we, in fact, we get more, even though the whole bottom floor of our house is a gym at home when we're, when we're back in Australia, we get more physical work in our bodies when we were away just by finding the right park to play in. It's fantastic. That is great. Well, I, yeah, I'm glad you're making the most out of the, the London trip. Oh, 
And the weather here has been sensational. It's a bit cooler today, but the weather so far has just been astounding. Next question, please. Sure. I'm gutted I couldn't come down and, uh, and, and do this interview in, in person, oh, but hopefully next look, time. The next, the next time we will, we, we, what we're doing, and I should mention this, we will only be coming, we don't, not quite sure, we will be coming to London next year, but we will be coming to London, we think, every second year from now on. We're going to make an announcement about the local um, people at the teachers that we have trained here. I don't, I don't want to preempt that, so we'll make that later. Um, and we're going to be going to London once every two years, and we think Singapore every second year as well, because they're our, they're our two hubs. But when we do come to London, hopefully next time, we'll be, because our cat passed, the, the, the um, our mascot, Suji, passed just before we yeah, came no. out. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. Ah, look, every, look that, it's, she died literally in our arms. So it was really, really a beautiful and, and powerful moment for both of us. Um, but the, the fiction of the Western culture is that somehow we're all supermen who don't have an end date. Everything that lives dies. That's our fate. There's no such thing as anything that lasts forever. And, and the, the whole point, point of the <coughs> Buddhist training that I spoke about on, on other occasions is to be clear, utterly clear about the things which are permanent, of which there are very few, and the vast majority of things which are impermanent, and to see that clearly. And of course, if something's impermanent, it's going to change and die. No problem. So it, when you start to wake up and see things more clearly, it simply makes the time that you have with, say, a, a, I don't say a person like Su Chi, but she was really very much like a person, a personality like Su Chi, with a very distinct personality. And in fact, we were very lucky. We, we had a couple of weeks with her after she had come back from being in a veterinary hospital where we were very clear that her life forces were diminishing and we enjoyed her during those two weeks immensely, intensely and deeply. It was so beautiful and lovely. And that's all. That's good. We we have, a, on, on the note of impermanence, we have a few questions on that mm. note, which we'll get to soon on, um, on someone who's been through a 10-day Vipassana retreat and had some questions for you on the back of that. Sure. Um, sure. 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 But... Uh, yeah, so the the next question was Stu McGill. I don't know if you uh, if you're aware of of his work. Yeah, yeah. On the surface, his approach seems to contradict your approach with um, with back pain. In that he he's all about learning to generate stiffness of the spine, relearning or reacquiring the activation patterns in the spinal stabilizers, and creating the kind of the guy wires, the counter forces on either sides of the spine, as well as avoiding flexion-based stretches or flexion flexion movement, um, not necessarily flexion moment, and delamination of the, the, saying that delamination of the spine and the life cycles of the vertebra flexing and extending is what predisposes us to injury. Now, one thing that he did say is that doing a combination of, say, yoga and powerlifting creates the perfect storm in that the powerlifting, you're, you're laying down collagen and, and stiffening the spine, and then with yoga, repeated flexion extension, you're then delaminating it and um, allowing a disc to extrude more easily. And he also talks about kind of this correlation between flexibility and back pain. Um, I don't know how much of Stu McGill's work you've read and what your thoughts are on his general approach relative to your own. Well, hmm. I think Stuart has a deep theoretical understanding of these things, but in practice many of the things that he claims will happen do not happen. That's all I want to say on that. Um, delamination, just 
It's it's like the yoga. Some schools of yoga have this belief that we are born with a certain number of breaths in the body, and so the reason they do breath extension work is basically to extend their life. Look, they're all ideas. They're ideas. They're concepts. The direct experience in the body, and I have read a great deal of Stuart's material. Uh, there is nothing in his material that I would describe as exemplifying that sense that has recently started to be popularly called interoception, which is the sense of what's actually happening in your body, clearly. The clear sense of what is actually happening in my body as I do exercise or movement X or Y or something else. Our work is about refining that sense to the maximum possible. So when I do an exercise that he regards as something that potentially delaminates the spine, whatever that means, um, that is not what's happening in my body. When I do a powerlifting exercise, and I do, I, my, my, my go-to weight training exercise is the Romanian deadlift. Now the Romanian deadlift, in my opinion, is superior to the standard deadlift because it takes the spine from horizontal to, say, 45 degrees or a bit more above that, and so the strengthening, stiffening, laying down of collagen, which is not... The, the, the way that Stuart explains these things, it's so extreme. Nothing in this life, in my experience, is ever this or that. In my opinion, the combination of the right kind of yoga, and we have to say the right kind of yoga because our work is not yoga, I would say the combination of our work, stretch therapy, which, unlike any other form of training, strengthens the muscles in the maximally elongated state. In other words, the normal sinusoidal force curve that, say, a bicep generates, and I demonstrated this in a workshop only a few days ago. I had a guy, I asked this guy, who's reasonably strong, to hold his arm out and keep it as stiff as he could, and I just showed how easy it was to bend his arm. I then held my own arm out, and I held it stiff, and hit, no matter what he did, I could bend my arm against his resistance, if I wanted to, or hold it stiff against his resistance. And the reason is, and yeah, he's a strong man, and I'm not Superman, and I, you know, I'm not doing much strength training at all at the moment, but the difference is this, when you do your stretching, and you use contractions at the end of the range of movement. And for men, we use maximum contractions eventually once the body is conditioned enough to take that force. When you do that, instead of the force curve being sinusoidal, it's flat. I can generate almost full strength at the end of the range of movement in my hamstrings, in my quadriceps, in my biceps and my triceps. No strength training does that. That is cool. The, the, the only strength training exercise that does that is the standing calf raise. And that's because only the standing calf raise loads up the body maximally in the stretched position. All other weight training exercises are some alteration to that suggestion. But if you combine your strength training, uh, or your, I should say your stretching training with the right degree of strength training, I would say rather than being the perfect storm that Stuart McGill refers to, it is in fact the perfect solution to the problem of how to be human and how to survive with maximum function to the end of your life. Interesting. And the best gains are made with full range of motion based on the data as well. Oh, and yeah. So 
Kit, you've you've kind of asked answered the next question, which is Matthew saying, "How would you overcome hyperextension in the knees or generally hypermobile joints?" Now that that is an extremely interesting question. Firstly, we had a guy on the workshop, the same workshop, who described his own body as hypermobile, um, and I tested his um, leg extension off the floor, and I tested his elbow extension. He had no hypermobility at all. He'd just been misdiagnosed. In fact, he was very stiff all over. But some practitioner at some point had looked at his joints and said, you're hypermobile, and so he did not do any of the training which we would regard as being essential training as a result of that. You have to be terribly careful of what we were talking about recently, the nocebo effect, which is the effect, the, the depowering, disempowering effect of having someone tell you that you've got X or Y or something else, and you should be careful because of P, Q, and R. Most of it is nonsense. If you're paying attention to what's happening in your body, all of these things are merely your own set of personal attributes which need tweaking, your training will need tweaking in a certain way to take account of those. Look, for example, let's say you're dealing with, some, well, two things. One is you can't do handstands unless your elbow joints hyperextend. You cannot do them. You have to have a desirable amount of hyperextension in the, in the, hand, in the elbow joint to do a good handstand just as you need a certain amount of hyperextension in the knee joint to be able to stand relaxed. You have to. So, if we work with someone who is genuinely hypermobile in the knee joint, for example, and we teach them stretching, what we do, let's say we talk about the triangle pose, everyone knows what that looks like, we say, we show them the extension of the knee joint in the mirror and say, that is too much hyperextension. So flex your knee until the knee joint looks straight, and here's the next thing, tense every muscle around that joint, and hold that knee in that position, now do the bend. Same with handstands. If you can't hyperextend your elbows, we're going to have to stretch brachialis first, and then once you're up in some loaded position, whether it be a plank or whatever, then before you load that joint, tense everything. Now when I'm in a handstand position or a plank position, we have that exercise, I don't know whether you've seen me do this or not, but we have, we have someone's foot against the hand that's on the ground, let's say we're talking about the plank position. They, the, they then load up the elbow joint, as in they're trying to flex the elbow joint, and you are doing everything you can with whatever you've got to keep that elbow joint straight. Okay, I've not seen that one. Oh, it's a fundamental gymnastic strength training exercise. They all do it. And I tell you, you, you develop the unbendable arm. <laughs> you actually have control over your arm. And um, look, next time we meet, you can try to bend my arm in that position. I put it on your shoulder. You can hang off it. And I, I don't have big muscles, but I do have that control of the range of movement. So strength, effective strength is a matter of neural innovation. And that itself is hugely dependent on your capacity to feel what's happening in the body as you apply your force. So I suppose the answer is be clear on the diagnosis that you have got yeah. hypermobility. I, I actually know Matt personally, and um, he, he may have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, so a connective tissue disorder, and he's had repeated subluxations of his shoulder uh, and uh, um, uh, ACL reconstruction and so on. Just hang on a tick, you dropped out at that critical point. You said you know this patient and... Oh, so he there's, there's a chance that he has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a connective tissue disorder, and multiple yeah. shoulder subluxations, and knee. Um, he's had ACL reconstruction. Okay, the solution for that young man is careful weight training and no stretching. 
at the end and the, the strengthening at the end of the range of motion as you, as you described because because we know this from our other reading any strength training in the absence of flexibility training tends to tighten up all the ligaments of the joint providing it doesn't damage them first and anyone with that connective tissue disorder has to be super careful um, with strength training and and stretching training but and this is the important part that does not mean they should not do these things sure it's just about right. striking the balance between us but exactly. and yeah so he and we say all the time the right balance in stretching just pretend you're using your i don't I want to sound polite here so i'll say gonads as as steering and brakes on a razor blade that's what i mean by playing the razor's edge on the one side you have insufficient stress so nothing will change and on the other side you're hurting yourself that is the razor's edge we need to play in our strength training and our stretching training much much more refined than what people talk about and i'll include stuart mcgill in this as well i see so outside of um outside of matt i suppose the majority of our listeners are much too far on the the strength end of the spectrum and uh yeah. the good thing is that we as, as we as we learned from you on the last podcast that strength that stretching doesn't negatively impact strength or hypertrophy and if anything it's a stimulus for hypertrophy in and in in and in and of itself so yes. there's no real but, but reason more, to not more, do it more more than that more, let me interrupt you um the right amount of flexibility let me take a step back i don't uh, i don't believe that anyone should start strength training before they've had their fundamental biomechanic looked at by someone who knows what they're talking about for example, what is the point of trying to do a handstand if you can't actually get your arms in a sufficient range of flexion to be able to support your body's weight in good alignment? Practicing the handstand will not give you that range of movement. I mean, God, I know that myself because it, it took Olivia years to convince me that my training partner and I were absolutely barking up the wrong tree. It's a funny story, so let me tell you the story. We'd worked out Dave. This is Dave, my apprentice. You know him, physical alchemist. Sure. Dave. Um, he and I, one day when Olivia came up the stairs to our gym, Dave and I were just high-fiving each other. We just made what we what was for us at that stage in our gymnastic strength training. We'd done the first two by two and a half minute uh, wall supports. This is very in the very beginning part of our training, but it took us a long time to get the two and a half minutes where we were actively pressing the floor away, working hard. And Olivia just looked at me and rolled her eyes and she, and she just flipped herself up into a handstand against the wall and over the next seven minutes told us where we were going wrong. She just stayed in a perfect handstand position with no effort whatsoever. Now Dave and I, we were fried by this point because we'd had five minutes in total time and the reason is we were fighting our own structure. I think I'm very much like you and Dave. I've got a very delty exactly. banana handstand, which... Exactly, exactly. And so that needs to be corrected first because actually you're sending the wrong signals proprioceptively to the handstand alignment problem. You have to be able to put yourself in the position first and the banana handstand will not give you that alignment. It will not, I promise you, it will not give you that alignment. You have to get the body into exactly the right alignment and now... Well, this is what I was doing two days ago. I flipped myself up into a wall handstand, got the right alignment, asked Lisa to check it for me. She said it was fine. And then I took my weight on one arm took and shifted the whole body across, held that for 10 or 15 seconds, then shifted back to the first arm, held that, repeated that twice. That was 
the handstand workout. So full body's weight supported on one arm. But unless you have the alignment, I could be built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'd never be able to support the weight in, uh, on my arms. That's the point. The alignment, Sheik made this point, and it is so critically important, and I'm just sorry I was so slow and I didn't see it. Strength comes from alignment as well as from muscles in certain positions. Now, in the full squat position, for example, here's a perfect example. If you can't keep your lumbar spine extended in a full squat, just slightly extended, you know, that really strong tight position everyone wants but many people can't get because their ankles aren't loose enough or their calf muscles are too tight and the knee joints won't close enough and all the other things that can go on. In my, in my way of looking at these things, you're much better served doing some remedial work on your fundamental biomechanics first or just doing some general physical preparation the way the Russians used to talk about it and include your stretching in that to make sure that everything's working properly I've got a decent lunge, I've got a decent um, body weight full squat with a straight back, I can hang from one arm, so in meaning I've got enough grip strength, I, I've got perfect shoulder alignment when you hang by one arm, everything, all of those problems just sort themselves out anyway, as you know, we've got some one arm hanging videos on YouTube I think, uh, and I worked up to five minutes, uh, my training partner and I, Craig, um, we worked uh, so 10 by 30 seconds on each arm, five minutes in total. And that, that's a lot of work, but it is. no shoulder problems. Just, just some basic things like that. And also, the, the one more thing that I think is basic but so super important, those body weight exercises that gymnasts all start with, the planks, side planks, reverse planks, uh, gymnastics plank, and then the one-arm version of all of those things, they, t they give you shoulder protraction, they give you activation of serratus anterior, the reverse plank is the, the best and most wonderful active stretch of pec minor and so on and on and on. All those old-fashioned things are gold. It's funny because those things are so tedious to do and so people skip over them, but then you end up paying the price later because, so as you're saying, um, position comes first. And you're right, like two and a half minutes in a handstand, even chest to wall, for me, would I'd be fried. And it almost feels like because I ha I'd lack some of the shoulder flexion, it's yeah, almost as if yeah. you're holding a, a dumbbell in like a front raise position for, for that long yeah, with your body exactly, weight. Like, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Now you dropped out there for me, so you might want to re um, repeat that. It's just the same as holding at a dumbbell in a front raise position, in, I think. In, in a front raise position, exactly. So like, there's, there's, a, there's a better example, and this one's also, it's so funny because Olivia exposed one of my weaknesses. That's her job, I think, in my life is to expose my weaknesses. We were doing that exercise, a very, very good exercise, where you lie face down, you, you hold your arms out like this face down, and you try and lift your arms off the ground with a small weight in your arms. Have you ever tried to do that? Yeah, I can't, can't, even, you, you, can't even break the floor. Yeah. So, 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 here, so here's this. I'm, I'm on the ground in the gym, and I said, Liv, check this out. And I said, I, I was saying, see, I've got this weight off the ground. I think I had a... It was a, a one of a, a light steel bar, so it would have been a um, not an Olympic lifting bar because they're 20 kilos. It would have been a light steel bar, one inch bar that we used for something else, probably weighed 15 pounds or something like that. You know how I was getting it off the ground? A lumbar extension. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, it was so so funny, and she just cracked up and said, "No, mate, you're not actually lifting the weight off the ground with your shoulders. You got it?" And so anyway, so then I tried to lift my. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't even separate the bar from the floor if I was doing it properly. So, in our system, form form is the first and the most important rule, and rule two is, see rule one, form is everything. 
for sure. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that exercise particularly, if anyone hasn't tried it and you're thinking, oh, that doesn't sound too hard, go and lie down now with a broomstick or even like a bit yeah. of paper and yeah, yeah. try and do it, guaranteed. But, but, you must, but you have to do it with a flat spine, a tuck tail. So, so the, the, the requirement of the exercise to pass it is you have to be lying face down, you have to tuck your tail so your whole tummy and pubic bone is pressed hard on the floor. You then have to reach the arms off the body in the plane of the floor and then try and lift them off the ground. I see. It's, it's, it's a brutal exercise. And of course, I mean, the reason why the gymnasts do it is once you can do it, you've got the right handstand line. And then when you get up against the wall, you won't be holding yourself up with massive tricep and trap activity. You'll actually just be aligned. That would be nice. It's a completely different <laughs> feeling. Well, it'll happen. It'll happen. Okay, next so question. next question is from Al, a fellow Australian. Uh, hmm. He says, first of all, let Kit know that I'm seeing results with my foot stretching routine uh, for plantar fasciitis uh, from your YouTube channel. Uh, six mornings a week, I can now fit Good. a thick part of my fingers in between my toes, and it's only half excruciating now, although, um, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the plantar fasciitis is being slow to, to clear up. Um, anyway. Okay, just stop. Sure. Plantar fasciitis. What he needs to do, this is, this is to forestall what might come next. And what's his name? Al? Al? <clears throat> is, is the question his name Al? Okay, you're dropping out occasionally. Uh, I, I'm supposed to could it be Al in? I'm not sure. Our, our connection is not perfect. Okay, Al, brace yourself because what you need to do, my friend, is you need to find a patch of gravel near your house. And you need to walk down to that patch of gravel. You need to contemplate the gravel with full awareness. And you need to take your shoes off <laughs> and carefully step onto the gravel and just let your whole body relax. Plantar fasciitis, the main cause of it, we are certain this is true. It's identical in mechanism to tinnitus or tinnitus, I think you call it. Um, basically, the reason why the plantar fascia is signaling pain is because there is a proprioceptive um, input that it's not getting and it, the neural system is amplifying the feedback from the soles of the feet and it's experienced as pain rather than sensation. We had a girl at one of our senior teachers who won't mind me mentioning her name, Marin Brown, very good teacher of, um, of stretch therapy and was an ex-gymnast and, and all the rest of that. But she had plantar fasciitis so badly at one point in her teaching career, teaching within our system, that she had to come to class wearing these thick, soft running shoes so that she could just stand on the floor. And I gave her the same advice. And I remember the look on her face when I said she had to go out to that patch of gravel that I knew was in front of her house. You're an evil person, and yeah. And she, <laughs> and she, and she just looked horrified and she said, I can't do that. And I said, well... You, maybe you have to unweight the body a little bit, maybe you have to organise a clothesline or something above so that you can take some of the weight off the soles of your feet. But I said, until you can actually stand on gravel and eventually walk around on gravel, even if it's only for a moment or two, the plantar fasciitis will not go away by itself. And she has absolutely zero plantar fasciitis now. It took her about two years. Plantar fasciitis is re-establishing the correct significance of the feedback that's coming from the proprioceptors. In other words, the, the gain is turned up too high in anyone who has plantar fasciitis. And so the calf muscle stretches will help because they pull on the plantar fascia. The toe separating things will help as well. But the body, it, I mean, one of the reasons why plantar fasciitis is so common today and it was, just didn't exist 100 years ago 
is that no one walks in bare feet anymore, or very few people do, and also we don't actually walk very much. Abraham Lincoln that I was talking about before, no farmers and people of that era would think anything of walking 20 miles. They just would not, they'll just say, we're going to be here tomorrow at such and such a time. 20 miles. Now, I don't know anyone who's not a bushwalker who'd actually think about being able to walk 20 miles. That's how weak and feeble the human body is today, and we just have to accept that as, as reality. And one of the downsides of this weakness is an over-amplification of many of the signals that are coming from the body, which are designed. I mean, the proprioception, the proprioceptive mechanism in the feet is absolutely fundamental to balance and coordination, and also relearning motor patterns. You might recall in the workshops we say any time you can have a palm in contact with the floor, or the sole of your feet in contact with the floor, or against the wall, or something that tells the brain what's happening in these parts of the body, your progress is impeded immensely. And what we, I mean, the, the proprioceptors as sense organs, as you know, are most numerous in the soles of the feet, and next most numerous in the palms of the hand. It's no accident. They're the two parts of the body that we exert force on the world via. And so the brain has to know. Here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You've, all, you've had the experience of reaching down to pick a glass of water off the table and suddenly finding it flying off the table because it's actually plastic, not glass. Yep. And we, this is how quickly this all happens. We, uh, we calculate precisely the amount of force that we think we need on the basis of past proprioceptive experiences. And as soon as we touch that glass and start to pick it up, the calculation of how much force is needed is remade in the, in the instant, and we suddenly find, oh, that's plastic, not glass, and you don't spill the water. And it makes how a lot of sense that what you said about the gain being turned up. You know, you described mm. uh, running trainers as kind of wearing a cast on your foot mm. at the workshop, and by doing so, yeah, you, you ended up, you're messing with the natural signals that are coming through. So, you're still there. So you, you, you dropped out there again. You dropped out again. We're, by wearing feet, we're missing out on... On the natural signals that we would normally be picking up on. So what oh, I'll say... More, 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 more. One more very important thing with running shoes. Um, running shoes allow a heel strike. The biomechanics of running in running shoes is completely different to the biomechanics of running in bare feet. And look, regardless of whether or not you endorse barefoot running, I do personally... Um, that, that, but you have to acknowledge the reality of this next statement, and that is the human body evolved for a minimum of 100 and perhaps up to 300,000 years without the benefit of any shoes whatsoever. So I think we can say prima facie that good biomechanics is actually the mechanics the body has to use when running in bare feet. Would you, Would you agree? agree that, with that makes sense, yeah. Well, or everyone who runs in bare feet will either land with their foot flat on the ground softly or there'll be a four-foot striker absolutely no one in the natural environment can be a heel striker it just hurts too much and so the advice that i give people if you want to learn how to run properly run without making any noise whatsoever and do a small amount of barefoot running barefoot running and walking first to see what movement the body actually needs to be able to do that without hurting itself and if you see that you'll see the full flowering of the pose method or whatever that other method is called about natural running that's it that's exactly all it is Nothing more than that. It's an elaborate and you know, expensive process of relearning. But if you want to learn it yourself quickly, take off your shoes and, and just walk and jog lightly without making any noise as far as you can in bare feet and stop after you can't go any further.
so, do that. So there's some very actionable tips for plantar fasciitis. So <clears throat> Al's question actually was um, that this has been echoed by a few other uh, readers as well. I had an experience of deep emotional blocks uh, releasing after a 10-day Vipassana retreat a few years back. Mm. And for a very rational materialist, it changed the way that I see the mind-body-spirit connection. What is the best way for you, uh, that you see to release emotional blocks manifesting in the body? And, and as I say, many other people uh, echoed this. You dropped out during that question. If you wouldn't mind repeating the question, I'd be very So he said, what, what is the best way to release emotional blocks manifesting in the body? And this was echoed by several others. Um, that is, it's, it's, the answer is extremely simple. The practice requires commitment and awareness and effort. Releasing emotional blocks. I'll take a step back. Um, Reich, Wilhelm Reich, who on many accounts, including my own, is Freud's most brilliant student. Wilhelm Reich, who wrote the book The Function of the Orgasm and a whole bunch of other things besides. There were four. Freud had four main, most famous students. Wilhelm Reich famously said, neurosis is identical to muscular tension. That you can't get more direct than that. Everything, that, he, his, his claim was, and he echoes John Locke, um, the Scottish philosopher in this as well, he said when the child comes into the world, it really is effectively a tabula rasa, a clean slate, <coughs> or empty slate actually, meaning... The, and, and you know, when you look at a baby, you can see this straight away. They're, they're completely open. They have no filters between themselves and the world. They look at you, they gaze at you. There's no reaction negative in them. No, they're simply experiencing whatever it is that they're experiencing in that moment. But Wilhelm went on to say, every insult and injury is experienced as muscular tension slash trauma in that child's body and so when a child is spoken to harshly or when it hurts itself or when someone abuses it or whatever the past history of each of these people is that is recorded in the body not in the mind this is where the fundamental neurophysiology is actually not accurate so an emotional block is simply some part of your body or your internal organs where you cannot release or relax tension. In other words, an experience is stored as a pattern of held tension, held tension because you can't let it go. Here's the, here's the Gedanken, the thought experiment. You're lying face down on a massage table, the massage therapist running their hands up and down your spine and it feels absolutely luxurious and gorgeous, right? It feels good, everyone's had that experience. But then they move a quarter of an inch one way or another and the next thing you know, oh! You feel pain. The off places are just those places you can't voluntarily relax. So pressure is experienced as pleasure when you can let the tension go, and that's what the soft parts of our body feel like. The hard parts of our body where we can't let that tension go, that's a blockage. Now I'm I'm skating over some chasms here, but that's the function. So what, ha and, and you've heard me talk about this on the workshop, so I won't repeat these stories now, but except to say that the idea of a person or the recollection of a trauma itself recreates that exact same experience in the body. Until that is processed consciously, until you have 
whatever technique you need to use, the capacity to let that part of the body go that you can't normally let go, the trauma will be re-experienced each time. And so a 10-day Vipassana retreat, um, I would say, and this is slightly different to what I'm talking about now, and I'm going to answer the question directly in a moment, but I would say whatever emotional catharsis or whatever emotional experiences or emotional experiences, probably the best word to use, you have on a meditation retreat, just experience them as fully as you can and let them pass through the body because they are the perfect example of impermanence and they will never last. Even if you sit there for half an hour feeling the deepest, deepest grief you've ever felt, it will pass. There's nothing more certain than that. It will pass. So what most people do is that the, any experience that they have is so unpleasant momentarily, they have to withdraw from the experience because they can't let it pass by itself. If you dive in and go in the opposite direction, and that's always the way to go, the opposite direction, go into it, not away from it, it will pass. And the realization that occurs, and this is why it's called insight meditation, the realization will arise, ah, it's not real. It's just a feeling. So to answer the question in a different way, what can we do about emotional blocks in, how can we... I don't like to use the word deal with them. How can we uncover and transform them? We have to find all the tight parts in our body and work on them in the way that we recommend. And hip flexors are unquestionably the most important place for the storage of these um, memories or these traumas. And that's simply because even if you're a flexible person, the last part of your body that you will have ever stretched is psoas. Now, psoas, if you, you'll recall from your own anatomical studies, is always drawn as a kind of a flat, strap-like muscle. It's nothing like that in real life. If you want to see what psoas looks like accurately, you have to look at Frank Netter, N-E-T-T-E-R's work. He, he is a surgeon who's also an anatomist. Phenomenal artist. Just, just breathtaking. So when you see in someone your size or my size, let's say we're medium-strong guys, psoas is a muscle that's that thick that spans over seven or eight inches of the front of the longest spine. I forgot what the cut of beef the psoas is, but it's, I remember it's quite a tasty one. Um, oh, it's, 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 it's a fillet. It's a fillet. It's a fillet steak. But in a, in, a in a quadruped, that's a muscle that has massive volume, but it has little tension in it because it does little work. All it does is pull the leg back to the, the starting position of the gait. But in human beings, this is not true. Not, it, it's much more than that. And it's also... Also, your diaphragm in a human being attaches to the front of psoas, and psoas has a continuous attachment to quadratus lumborum, which is where most people's back pain is experienced. So there is the fundamental emotional connection between breathing, tension, and a part of your body that you can't work. We've had people stretch psoas, which, which is the second or third part of the hip flexor stretch that we show free on YouTube, We've had people get up off the floor and just burst into tears for no reason. And then one woman, I remember one woman, who she is a dancer in Vancouver, she burst into tears and she was just distraught for about 30 seconds. Then it passed, just like, you know, a breath of wind on a pond, just rippling the water. And she just looked at me and she looked at the whole group and she said, my niece was run over by a car two and a half years ago. I've not been able to feel anything in my body for the last two and a half years, which, of course, you can imagine created immense problems in her relationships. And she said, I have just felt my body for the first time. And she then relaxed completely. And she said, I've just realized it's all okay. Wow. And she, and she had a complete transformation just in the space of 30 seconds. 
So it was the most amazing thing to see. Now I'm not suggesting that anyone who, you know, our readers and listeners are going to have the same experience. In fact, the more you try to preempt some sort of cathartic experience, the less likely it is to happen. You have to do what I was suggesting to our previous questioner, simply pay attention to what's happening now. With without any of yourself in it. Uh, it's not a question of I want this, I'm doing this activity to make this happen. No. You're doing this and watching to see what happens. That's all. Being open to what might happen. That's all. So the most effective technique in your in, in your approach would be would be this for releasing emotional blockages. Yes. Oh, oh. Uh, unquestionably. Uh, unquestionably. Look, um, basically psychiatry, uh, psychotherapy, um, psychology is based on the assumption that in the case, in Freud's case, it was the recreation of the trauma via the talking about the trauma <clears throat> and the re-experiencing of that trauma in the safe environment of a, of a, a psychotherapist's couch that the trauma itself would be transformed. But um, Wilhelm, in his, in his um, assertion that neurosis is identical to muscular tension, provides a completely separate and I would say non-invasive and much more palatable approach than having someone talk to you about your potty training or your relationship with your mother or you know, the traumas that you've experienced or trying to you know, recreate the birth trauma experience. You don't need to go down that road. You don't need to use anything exotic or in any way airy-fairy. You have your physical body right in front of you. And this is why I was saying recently about the first Satipatthana, that, that, that sutta in, in Buddhism. The body is the first foundation of mindfulness because it's there with you all the time and because you can't escape it and because right in it is all of the trauma that you're talking about. It's, a, it's there, just waiting to be gently exposed. So Elliot Hulse was, is kind of... Um, a guy who's popularized Wilhelm Reich's approach with with mm -hmm. bioenergetic breathing and yes, so yes. rapid breathing and lots of tapping um, screaming and sort of jumping up and down on the heels and um, opening up those those channels is that an approach that you've tried with people or something that you'd recommend it's it's it, it's I've had to play around with some of those things um, and I'm familiar with his work I'm just going to fall back on what I suggested before. I mean, you can play with those things, and if they if they resonate, and I've used that word deliberately, if they resonate in your body, then go with them. But what I'm talking about, the postulation of the bioenergetic pathways is not even necessary. In other words, if we apply Occam's razor, which, which as you know, and I know a little bit about, <coughs> um, Eric postulated the existence of all sorts of other things, which in my systems it's not necessary to know about, which no doubt, though, supervene on them and so are affected by them by only concentrating on range of movement which is something that has no emotional content for most people it's not considered threatening um, it doesn't ask you to you know as I said deal with your potty training it doesn't require you to scream any of those things you simply find out where in your body you cannot release tension from voluntarily and apply the techniques that soften that area and, I'm just going to repeat, and see what happens. Because trauma, this is so critical to understand, trauma is embodied. It does not exist outside of the body. Now, the, some, some therapists regard trauma as being 
embodied in the physical structure of the brain and the mind. Our position is that because the brain, or the mind I should say, and the body are isomorphic, in other words, what's going on in the body is going on and mirrored perfectly in the mind, just as thinking about something creates the same reaction in the body. I'll give you a perfect example. <clears throat> You're at home, you had a drink of a glass of wine or two, you're with your loved one, romance is in the air, you're feeling wonderful, you've heard the story. And the phone rings, no drama, you walk over to the phone, you're still feeling lovely and light and, you know, the anticipation of the next, you know, few hours of pleasure with your loved one, or even just being completely peaceful and relaxed with your loved one, and you pick up the phone and it's your hated father-in-law. And in the instant, it takes a fraction of a second, about one-tenth, two-tenths of a second, in the instant of hearing, the hated father-in-law's voice, your body literally organizes itself into hated father-in-law mode or posture or position or shape. Now, the crazy thing about the hated father-in-law, he's in an insane asylum in Helsinki. He's completely, you are completely safe. There is no way he can affect you in any way. He lives 5,000 miles away from you, let's say we're in Australia. But nonetheless, the sound of the voice literally recreates the experience. So now what, now what more, ev more evidence do you need than that to talk about this connection between the mind and the body and why rec working on the body is the recommended and safe and least threatening way and you can you take your time with it. This is why I love this approach because although it is it challenges um, swathes of, of psychotherapy and everything but it's empirically testable and it and it's it happens, you know, you, you witness it every day when you speak to the father-in-law or when something like that happens. Now, to bring that to some kind of application, let's say you go into father-in-law mode when you answer the phone and your shoulders rise and you get, you, you prepare for, um, like, a, like a cat does for a fight. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. What would be, so, let's say before okay, that... Okay, stop, stop, let's stop, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for asking, asking that question. <laughs> Look, the whole work that we do and this, I, I haven't spoken about this. this is, it's not a new thought for me, but it is new to actually talk about this publicly. It's not obvious, but the, the, the worthwhileness of our work is, is one thing. It's simply to generate more options in the moment. Now, I know this sounds like a bit of a stretch, if you'll excuse the pun, but let me explain what I mean. Working on your body, working on the sensations in your body, necessarily brings you into the present. If you recall our recent conversation, physical sensations are momentary and only exist in the present. They don't exist in the future, they don't exist in the past, they can never be recreated. It's always the mind that does the recreation of the physical sensation, but the body doesn't do it by itself. Right? It's the mind processing the sound of the voice that creates the sensation. It's not the impingement of the on the auditory nerve that causes the... Do you get what I'm saying? So the, the, when you have done enough of this kind of work, you'll find that in the instant of hearing the hated father-in-law's voice, you will have the wherewithal, the actual capacity, the capacity to choose an alternative option in the moment. And what you do, it's simple, you let your tummy go completely soft. Now, it's not an obvious thing, but you cannot get angry, you can't get upset while your tummy is soft. What happens, though, is the movement to anger, or whatever other movement is appropriate, or at least you feel it, or it's not even appropriate, whatever other movement's hardwired into your system um, for the hated father-in-law, 
instead of you automatically and at warp speed moving into that reflexive response, there's space there. And this happens, or the capacity to exercise an option is incredibly small space. But the more you're in tune with the present, the more you actually live in the present, the larger that space becomes. That's okay. That's answered the question then, because I think what what we the the father-in-law issue is is different to I guess the other processes you've mentioned, which is resting tension all the time. That's the accumulation of these traumas or these things that have happened, relative to in this yeah. case yeah. you you have let's say you you normally you're walking around with relaxed traps, and then only when the trigger comes in do they yeah. tense up. So yeah. you're saying yeah. it's not so much about um, having done stretching work on that area it's more that you've built the awareness over time so that when a trigger does come up and the tension arises you can smooth it earlier and earlier it, 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 it's actually both <clears throat> you it's very very hard to develop awareness without that having um, an overall muscle tonus reducing effect anyway you, you've been on my workshops i'll always say to participants just come over and feel my body feel what it feels like and you might recall i don't know whether you actually did but most people do, and it, my body's completely soft. Even when I'm standing up, moving around, walking around, it's soft. I think there's a, there's a picture of me it's actually not, feeling your um, your spine. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> and, and it, it's soft, and it's just not that's not normal. But what it gives me is what it what it has led to, and this is where this awareness comes from, is that my body. There's a, I won't say there's a delay in responding because I I can get angry in the space of a heartbeat just like anyone else, but. Unlike most people, and I should actually mention where that idea of a heartbeat came from, I might mention that later, we'll just see. But because I'm actually feeling what's happening in my body all the time, I can feel my body organizing itself to get angry. And because I can feel that, the actual process starting, I can my relax tummy my tummy and just say, and just say no, no. Stop no, it from spiraling. Yes. Yes. It, because it's a reflex. Not only does it spiral, it intensifies, and this happens in about, well, you ask yourself, or any of our listeners ask yourself, when you suddenly get angry, how long does it take? It's less than half a second. It's less than half a second. So you haven't got a lot of time to work with here. And so the closer and closer you come in contact with your, what's happening in your physical body, it's not so much that the whole body becomes soft. That's a byproduct, I think, but that's also true. It is that you are aware. Anyone, I, mean, I can speak from anger because that's always been the, the emotion that's had the, the most negative effect in my life and of course on the people around me too. Um, is that when you become more in tune with what's going on in, in your body, and I should also add this can be done completely by interoception, it can be done completely by sitting meditating, it can be com done completely by lying relaxation, it can be done completely by only working on what looks like stretching exercises. They all yield the same result. But you will feel that, that the body set setting itself up to become angry has a pattern that's unique to you and it is always the same. As, as a, one of my teachers used to say, you've got a PhD in upset. What I mean is that no matter what your emotional blockage or problem is, whether it's grief or melancholy or anger or any of the other negative emotions, anyone who has that has practiced it 10,000 times and as we know 10,000 times is the key to mastery. But unfortunately this, this mastery, mastery is, is the, the major blight in your, in your life. life. It's an undesirable so, so mastery. Need, yes, yes. Under, and most mastery 
is undesirable mastery because most mastery is unconscious. As soon as you start to bring awareness to the problem, as soon as you start to see and feel, and I would say feel is the more important thing, these things happening, all of a sudden you have options. Do I get on that train when I know where it goes or not? Or do I just say, you are aware of the anger, you let your tummy relax complete, and you say, Henrik, what a pleasure it is to hear from you. What can I do for you today? And if you get to that point of having the capacity to simply interrupt what is just a completely motivationless, reflexive response, the body, remember, does not, there's no malice to this. It's simply something you've learned. It's a pattern you literally have created yourself, even though we don't think of it that way. As soon as you have the first experience of being able to interrupt that, everything changes for you. Now, it's not to say that you won't get angry in the future. If you talk to Olivia, she'll tell you I get angry all the time about different things. But I will say, and I don't know whether she'd agree with this or not, but it passes much more quickly. The the ephemeral nature of it, it's, uh, the way it was explained to me, and this was so liberating and so helpful for me to hear this, a teacher I was working with at the time said, I made the remark, we'd had a, quite a few cognacs at this point and we were being really open and honest with each other, and I said, I'm really looking forward to the time in my own, you know, development. I know it's not a development because we're not acquiring anything, but we're actually, in fact, we're actually taking things away. But we talk about this process. I'm looking forward to the time when I'm not angry all the time. And he just looked at me and he said, why? And I said, you know, it tastes horrible. It's really damaging to me. It's ghastly for the people I'm among. He said, yeah, of course I know all that. He said, let me tell you about the time that the Rishi spoke of the time they spoke of before the Vedas were written when the great beings walked the earth. The great beings were angry for the space of two or three heartbeats. And that became my goal. I could see straight away when that story was told to me. Because I, this guy, Leo Lama Leo, said to me, some people are angry for two or three heartbeats, some are angry for two or three days, some two or three weeks, and some their whole life. And the, the point is we do actually get a choice if we're aware of this, but if you're only ever behaving reflexively, you, the by definition, there's no awareness there. So as, as you become aware, aware of, of the changes manifesting, whatever they are, over time, and as your awareness and concentration is also important here too, strengthens, then the capacity to interrupt the process arises. You become aware that it's possible not to do that and you choose not to do it. So I'm sure people listening are thinking at the start I was convinced of stretching just even if all it did was to make me more flexible and now this is like the benefits that you would get would be to have this completely unimpeded flow where you're angry for two or three heartbeats as the ultimate goal and Al is asking what is the um, first of all what's the minimum effective dose in terms of weekly routine but um, should you then target a specific muscle area or should you attack the whole system? And, and then he's got another question later about application, about periodization as well. Okay. Well, let me let me just look at the time. It's already nearly midday. Um, firstly, and I, and I say this from my own personal experience, and the experience I can talk from after all, in my body, but this is not true for Olivia's body, in my body, the acquisition of the experience of serenity in the body was absolutely the major step. In fact, all of my flexibility gains have come as a result of having that experience in my body. 
and that experience came um, you could say partly from stretching but it came far more from doing the lying relaxation practices which as you know are free from our website um, and simply experiencing in time what being deeply relaxed actually feels like because there's no point in saying to someone relax when they actually don't have that experience in their body and as I mentioned the other day um, the our, our forebears uh, are the, the, the you know the, the most efficient creators of the fight or flight reflex, reflex in the history of the planet um, and our, that's our skill set unfortunately and so to acquire that parasympathetic nervous system response that that experience of serenity and deep relaxation in the body for certain um, members of our audience will be the most immensely useful first step but having said that if, if that's not a practice that appeals to you and it's not a practice that appeals to Olivia for example then working on the flexibility exercises will definitely get you part if not all the way there and they may well take you all the way there the thing that, that you can concentrate on whole body if you want I think that's essential to do that in the beginning because no matter how well you think you know your body you will be an expert at avoiding stretching the places in your body that actually need stretching and you, you've seen this on the workshop I'll say to someone okay get into this position and you will see the most creative interpretation of that position <laughs> because each person knows exactly how horrible that's going to feel if they do it properly so they don't they turn their hips or they roll their leg or do whatever and so you need to work with someone you need to work with someone who can in the process of stretching the whole body over a period of weeks or whatever it is identify which are your tightest and most blocked lines and they're the ones you concentrate on because there is no doubt in my experience that working on your tightest lines yields the best bang for the buck if we can be instrumental in thinking about it this way if we're thinking about what is the practice what's the structure of my practice that will give the best results for the least amount of effort spent identifying your tight spots and changing those will, gi will give you that best bang for the buck as for frequency let your body be the guide for that there are some people like me who get the late onset muscle soreness after every strength training workout and after every stretching workout and there are other people who've never experienced DOMS in any form my my strong suggestion is if you if you give yourself the schedule or permission of stretching one decent session a week or two decent stretching sessions a week if you're really serious don't rush it take your time do the rest of your training as well and in six months time you won't recognize yourself if you combine that with the lying relaxation as well it's a it's an amplifying effect right thank you so Kit, I'm aware that you need to go and have your breakfast, so shall we yeah, run yeah. through the final questions, just rapid fire, yeah, yeah. and wrap yeah. things up? Yeah. Cool. So Al says, should a flexibility program be periodized, or should it be run alongside a sports practice if the goal is performance? Okay. The idea, periodization, and the concept sport practice, both are concepts. Flexibility exists in the realm of the body, and it's pre-conceptual. Your task Al should you decide to accept it is to learn to feel what's happening in your own body and then questions of periodization and sports performance will it be relevant you'll feel exactly how often how deeply to stretch and when not to the body becomes a self-regulating mechanism if you look the what we say in the workshops is the body is talking to you all the time but we're either deaf to what it's saying or we don't understand the language the language of the body is sensation and only sensation there is nothing else sensation is the exhaustive 
lang exhaustive language of the body. There's nothing else. How well can you feel your body? And when you start to go into it, most people can't feel their body at all. In fact, they've got a very strong vested interest in not feeling their body because their body is hurting them a lot of the time. And that ranges from the fully injured and incapacitated through to people who just say, I'm not going to get up and walk around because I need to have this finished by the time I leave work today. That's how good we are at separating ourselves from what's happening in the body. So the, the primary utility of any flexibility routine is relearning to hear, to experience the sensations in your own body. Now, once you do start to experience the sensations in your own body, then the idea of periodization becomes irrelevant because when I go to stretch today or tomorrow, I feel, oh, this is still sore from the other day. I do something else. You come back to it two or three days after that, ah, I feel exactly how this feels now. I take a breath in, I can go deeper, I'll do the contractions. Ah, look, new range of movement. You, the alleged owner of the body, cannot control the process. We like to say working with the body is like working with a wild animal. No sudden noises. Don't try to make it do what it doesn't want to do and no sudden movements. If you follow those rules and start to listen and to feel what's happening inside your body, all conceptual understanding of how to work with the body will literally evaporate. So it all comes down to, again, cultivating awareness of the body and working with it rather than applying a structure. Yep. Cool. Um, so I'll, I suppose, that, again, you've kind of answered this too. Al said, what is the biggest mistake that people make when trying to get flexible? And what's the most common bad advice out there in the fitness industry on flexibility? Well, that's easy to answer. Periodization and specificity for sport performance. Do you get what I'm saying? The, those are conceptual perspectives on the body. The body does not exist in the conceptual realm. The body exists only in the continuously unfolding present and only by tapping into its sensations can you understand what's happening inside it. Having said that, if we approach it at a more mundane level, um, your tightest, the tightest areas in your body should be stretched no more than once a week and for some people could be as much as once every 10 days or even once every two weeks as appropriate. And the reason for assessing appropriateness is basically you'll be the first time you stretch your hamstring muscles properly, you'll be sore for a week. I promise you that's true. So what's the point in trying to stretch something that's actually really physically sore? There's no advantage to it at all. But you know in our system we distinguish between limbering and stretching. Limbering is the modern or the old-fashioned way of describing mobility. Um, limbering uh, is simply recapturing yesterday's range of movement. And so everyone should be doing some limbering. I mean, when we go to the park, that's exactly what we do. Um, stretching, on our definition, is actually obtaining momentarily new range of movement by a, a raft of means, and that will leave you feeling sore. So once again, you need to be tuning into what your body is telling you to be able to calibrate the dose. Remember that sliding along the edge of a razor blade using your balls as rudder and brake? Not enough, too much? Like Silas and Crivdus? That's what we're talking about. That is the fineness. The fineness of your discrimination has to be that level. Eventually. Of course it can't happen overnight. But the more you practice these things, the clearer this insight and this understanding and this connection becomes. Excellent. The final two questions, Kit, were if I had £100 to spend on tools for getting flexible, what should I buy? 
apart from your books, of course. Um, I would say spend, well, I can't remember how much Master of the Full Squad is. I think it's about £10, isn't it? Uh, I think so. I'd start there. Well, let's say, okay, blow the budget, spend £10, get Master of the Full Squad, because there are, there are in, uh, quite a large number of what we call relatively small muscle group or small movement things in that, which are not directly related to the squat movement itself, but but which don't really fit well in the Master of the Pancake or Master of the Pike or Master of the Full Backbend. So we recommend to everyone that they start with Master of the Squat, and then you decide how to spend your money after that. So that the risk is small. I think it's £10 for that program. Or you could simply spend some time on the YouTube channel, which is free. If you're not, there's an exercise there which is called the lunge hamstring stretch. Um, and it actually contains a brief um, description and practice of a set of movements which talks about the three reflexes we use with the three reflexes that we manipulate that yield to more yield more flexibility in the body. It's a it's a free thing. I think the program is six or seven minutes long. Um, you should uh, measure your toe touching capacity before doing that on both legs, and then measure your toe touching capacity after doing that. And if you're not convinced by then, then this method's not going to work for you. Okay, so the next question, Kit, was if I had £100 to spend on tools for getting flexible, what should I buy? Uh, well, I wouldn't spend £100. I would I would spend £10 or whatever it is. I can't remember the price. I think it's about £10. I'd spend £10 on Master the Full Squat. And then if you decide you like the approach um, and that you get some benefit out of that, then you can decide to go in any of the other four directions that are available from there. Um, our programs are not expensive, and the reason why I recommend starting with Master the Full Squat, and, and I would make that recommendation even if you've got an excellent bodyweight squat, and that's because there are a bunch of small exercises which don't fit any of the other four programs which I decided to put into Master the Full Squat and which are necessary for full hip mobility. So start there and then decide where to go after that. You know, you might, you might just spend 20 quid and find that you've um, got enough, or alternatively, buy master the full squat uh, for 10 quid so that if I had kids they'd, they'd be thanking you I'd send them to college you know on, on all the money but we don't have kids but we, I like the money anyway uh, but what I was going to suggest was instead you could go to YouTube and if you went to for example if you went to an exercise called lunge hamstring you will find a succinct explanation of the entirety of our approach including mention of the three reflexes that we manipulate in order to become more flexible um, and that exercise itself is the best hamstring exercise on the planet. If you follow the directions, if you do a toe-touching test before you do that exercise and then do a toe-touching test afterwards, I guarantee that five minutes will make you more flexible instantly. And although it is £10, if you are afraid of, of sinking the money, obviously the YouTube channel um, is testament to the amount of quality and the amount of stuff that's available there. And really the the paid products and I'm, I'm selling your your stuff here kit but um, thank you the, the paid products are uh they really are over delivery and i remember you saying i think it was on the last podcast that you artificially keep the price down so as not to um not not to punish those who, who can't afford it and and reward those who can so um, yeah, look, 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 look. Um, uh, we had we had a donation button on our website which no one used. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Not one person donated a fucking penny to us, and that's okay. Um, but having said that, let me explain the philosophy behind a, behind our work. 
As you know, none of our programs have any kind of um, digital management, or digital rights management system or anything like that. Once you download it, you can do what you like with it. And to be honest, we just regard that as free advertising. If you send them to your friends, please ask them to buy something at some point. But if you, if you have a friend who's poor or, or you just want to send something to them that you think would be useful to them, we, we don't mind that at all. It's just it's not any kind of a problem for us because it's, well, without going into all the, the sort of theoretical perspectives on economic modelling, the one thing that is true in this instance is that the space that we're working in is infinitely large. If you have an internet connection and you have the capacity to discriminate, you will quickly be able to work out that most of the stuff that's available on the internet is, is, is shite or useless, or some just some bendy beautiful young lady, you know, dressed in lycra and with a low-cut top, showing you how to do side splits, it won't actually help you do side splits at all. It will not improve your lateral flick or your, uh, what is it, hip abduction capacity one iota. But all of our material will actually transform your flexibility in time, providing you do the work. And we have the forums available too, and I know you, you know all about them, but the forums are simply text-based, and also there are images there too and links to videos, but it is the single best, most complete compendium of information that's available on stretching anywhere on the internet, and it's free. If you want to post yourself, if you want to ask a question, if you say, look, I've got this particular problem and I need to modify an exercise this way, someone will answer. And what's more, the standard of discourse there is sober, intelligent, and interesting, and people are polite to each other. We have not we, no, I was going to say we've not deleted a single post. I did delete one post, and that was the, the post where the advice was given um, to do a couple of lines of cocaine to someone that had, had uh, he, he had some blockages in his nasal system. And I, I wrote to this guy and said, look, you little fucker, we, that's not the advice that we give um, for all sorts of different reasons. And, and the, to his credit, the guy came back and said, look, mate, I really was only kidding. And I, and I said, look, I know you're only joking. That's okay. Um, and he's contributed uh, con continued to be a, a useful contributor to the forum. So he's the only one. We do not edit things. We don't delete things. We don't censor things. We don't it's a very do rare thing for an online and forum for there not to be we, trolling we and don't, flaming and all that stuff. We don't need to. We don't need to because there are no trolls there and no flamers. Um, and I, I remember, I think I, we discussed this once before, but I found that I was banned from a forum. You might know whose forum I'm talking mm. about. Coach, Coach Summers forum. Um, because all of a sudden, um, when, when I went to look at something that I'd written the day before and I was going to amplify a, a, a post that I'd made there, I found that my IP address had been banned by his system. It was very amusing. I joined, I joined a rather select group of people who had been banned from his forums. And, and, you know, all of, all of my posts were deleted as well. So <laughs> we, we learnt a lot from that. And the big thing that we learnt is that censorship just doesn't work. I mean, on Reddit, if you go onto Reddit, for example, and, and Google our names, you'll see there's a whole discussion about you know, the different ways of doing the things that we do. And, and as you know, I, I apply the 50-year test to everything. In my, in my world, if I, if I need to make a decision about something, I, apply, I ask myself, who'll care in 50 years? Who'll give a fuck in 50 years, actually, is how the test actually runs? And so far, the answer to every question has been, well, no one, in which case, we fall back on what I call the second order decision-making process, which is very simply expressed. 
we decide in favour of the course of action that will bring the greatest amount of good to the greatest number of people who are involved in whatever it is that we're talking about. Very simple. I think if the content brings in the right type of traffic, then as, as you do with the forum, you're, you're very laissez-faire and it brings in very intelligent arguments on both sides and you're, you're yeah. often very, you're open to, to any of that and there's hours worth of reading. I remember I had a yeah. long, long train journey across the country and mm. the forums um, certainly, uh, certainly kept me entertained the whole time. So lots well, of stuff I've learned I've learned things from the forums. If you have an explicitly open learning system, which we do, um, then because that you're not spending your energy on protecting your barriers, I mean, let's face it, anyone who knows anything only knows a tiny fraction of the whole. And so I realized this a long time ago, because we can't know everything, we have to take the opposite stance. We actually have to be completely permeable. We have to let people take our material. And we hope that uh, we'll get information in return that will be useful to the larger enterprise, which is how to achieve grace and ease in the body. And I assure you that in the, in the time that the forums have been running, and of course all the classes that we ran at the university for the 20 odd years before that, um, that approach has borne a thousand times the dividends of, of the investment that we made originally. I'm thousand sure, times. yeah, it's great marketing, Easily. even though it's not a strategy per se, it's, it's just a, a foundational... Yeah assumption but yeah it gives rise to intelligent debate and i'm sure once mm -hmm. people get a taste of the content they think all right i'm i'm going to dive in yeah so next question next question was <coughs> what is the best exercise for getting good at downward dog oh that's a piece of cake um that one's actually the simplest uh, i will say downward dog and i can't remember what the name um is in sanskrit uh, it'll come to me but downward dog is basically an exercise in ankle flexibility and also exercise in the capacity of the sciatic nerve to exit the intervertebral foramina and at the same time deal with the flexion of the hips and at the same time deal with the dorsiflexion of the ankle which places the sciatic nerve under the greatest stretch it can experience. So we have an exercise called the single leg dog pose and that's available free on YouTube. It's actually a sample exercise from one of our programs. I can't remember which one, doesn't matter. Um, and Olivia is demonstrating it and using the ladder bars, but you can use a wall to do the same thing. And that single leg downward dog will give you the flexibility in the ankles and the length in the, both the hamstrings and the sciatic nerve to be able to do the full downward dog in time. The full downward dog, if you go, if you Google it on YouTube, I have never seen a single individual do it properly. Now, when I do single leg downward dog, my back is a gentle extension from sacrum to my fingertips, and that includes shoulder flexion. Uh, my heels are on the ground, and my feet are about 8 or 10 inches apart. That's what the two-legged downward dog would look like. Now, I haven't done the two-legged downward dog for quite some time, but I used to be able to do it perfectly. Um, but the secret is ankle flexibility, basically. Cool. Well, that is all of the questions. Kit, thanks for your patience with <laughs> running through all of these. And uh, if you want to uh, check look, out we, we, more we, of we Kit, need... then um, check out the podcast. We have a previous episode where we go over the, the general, um, general philosophy. Yeah. Also, look at the Coffee Shop Conversations with Dave Wardman from Physical Alchemy. Um, and there's also a number of podcasts on Kit's website, stretchtherapy.net. Check out the YouTube channel as well, a huge repository of free stuff on there. So if you're not convinced about any of the programs, all they do is they, they put it together into an order. And so um, I'm sure it'll be uh, enough for you to, to get on with to begin with. Finally, I can't recommend Kit's workshops enough. Um, I went to the one in London last year and it just went great. top to toe, two days, and it was just a full 
um, handbook of stuff to go away and get started with. It, it was fun, and, and and I know. Well, I know you know this, but I'm just going to mention it because other people who are listening have not had the experience. The workshop experience is unique, and the actual level of communication and understanding that can occur in that two days of what's effectively a pressure cooker environment can lift your own performance immensely. You might remember the number of breakthroughs that different people had on that workshop. Massively, people. It's incredible. And some people have been working for years and trying to siege a particular problem, not being able to do it. What happens is when you get a, a, a when you get a group of people, and a collective energetic mass happens, and it's something else that we do not understand well happens. And I'm not just saying this to sell the workshops. If you if you look at the testimonials on our site from people who've attended just a single workshop, they're just breathtakingly strong. We don't invent any of that stuff. That's what people actually write back to us. For example, a woman today, a Pilates teacher, wrote to Olivia this morning and said in her work she needs to attend workshops and upskill and all the rest of it, keep in, keep in touch with the latest developments in her field. She said, I've been attending workshops regularly for 14 years, and she said, hands down, your workshop's the best I've ever been to. Now, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. I, I, there's two things I think, well, shit, the, the average standard of workshops can't be all that high. And then on the other hand, maybe I'm undervaluing our own work too, because I do know that, that a number of really amazing things always happen on the workshops. And I, I'm honestly just so grateful for the opportunity to do what, what the Buddha calls right action or right livelihood, actually. We are so fortunate, Olivia and I, to be able to teaching, and this is true for you too, teaching things which are useful to other people and which do not rip other people off. We don't need to make someone else poorer in order for us to be richer, collectively. And I'm, this is not just a, an idea to me. This is our whole life. We just simply need to be and want to be useful to other people. And there are a number of different ways that we have of actually getting traction on that idea, presenting workshops and you know, traveling around the world and doing things in different places. It's actually really hard on us physically, and we don't actually enjoy traveling. If you've traveled recently, you know exactly what it's like. It's not a pleasant experience. The idea of, quote, the romance of travel, well, that died back in the 1930s, I think. That's been a long, long time since anyone said, well, that's actually a relaxing, exciting experience. It normally takes you know, at least a week to recover from a, an overseas trip of two or three months. But at the same time, I can say, honestly, there is no activity in my life where I feel more alive than when we're challenged by people and where we are actually involved in the opening up of their bodies and the complete demolishing of, of ideas that they have about their own limitations and their own ideas of what they can and can't do. Not in any forceful way. You know how we work. It's very gentle. But it's transforming, and it's. I am just. I feel honestly, truly blessed to to have found this way of making a living. It's just great. And that's that's very true in the way that the the workshops are run. I mean, there's a strict capacity limit for how many people can can do it, so that you can maintain that ratio of of facilitators to um, attendance. We have to, we have to. The max, the biggest number that we have ever taught anywhere, I think, is about. From memory, it's about 37 people. I remember I went to a Thomas Myers workshop once in Australia, and there are 170 people in this workshop. It's, it's absurd. Or I know some of the yoga workshops are also huge. I've seen some massive ones, yeah. Well, you, basically, you're looking at two big screens. 
up there's a there's a video camera on the presenter who's a dot in the far distant background and you're interacting with this person via a video screen um it's it's not real it's we we do make money from our workshops and our workshops are middle of the road price wise but we work we do enough of them so that we make enough money to pay our mortgage and all those other kinds of things but we want people to have a life-changing experience on those workshops if they're open to it they will have one great well kit it's been a pleasure thanks so much for coming back on um despite the uh, the connection issues that we had and uh how can we find out more about you and and access you is there anything i've missed there in the stretch therapy and forums i think look the the name you can put the name of our website um, up at stretchtherapy.net um, anyone that goes onto that website, there's lots of free articles there. There's links to all of the relaxation scripts. There's links to all of the podcasts that you talked about. And this one will be up there too as soon as you send it to me. Um, all the workshop schedule is up. For example, London, next year's workshop schedule is already up. We're going to add one to it. We're going to do a stretch therapy for performance workshop as well, which is not currently listed, but it will be within the next week or so. Um, and yeah, we... We, this is interesting. I want to talk about this for a moment, just for a second. We have almost no American or Canadian members of our forum. And this, the reasons we think are extremely interesting. The vast majority of forum members are non-English speaking people. I mean, they speak English, but English is not their first language. The majority are Europeans, Italians, um, Swedes, Norwegians, Danes. Um, everywhere else on the continent, and English people, Scottish people, Irish people. but And that's fascinating to me, because although I worked, I had an O-1 visa, it's a very difficult to get visa uh, for, for America. It's this sort of unlimited work visa, you come and go as you please. Very hard to get. Um, but even though I taught there for 10 years, we hardly got any traction in the American market. Our work actually requires you to think about it. Now, I don't want to imply that Americans don't think, but there is definitely the iPhone generation, if I can talk about the momentum and trajectory of that generation, the Facebook using group seems to be, the Americans and Canadians seem to fit that group much more than they fit the way we do things. The work that we are doing actually require, actually requires that you pay attention to what's happening, you must learn to concentrate, you can't do this work unless you do that. And it requires a level of awareness, which means that you actually have to let go of the ideas that you have about what and, what and who you think you are. I mean, it sounds a bit radical, and, and a lot of people find that quite confronting. But at the same time, there is a huge number of people in the world who want to go beyond the surface appearance of things. So how do you do that? Well, unless you join a cult or do something else, you, it's, it's very, very hard to do. It's very hard to access in normal daily life. But our work is all about grace and ease in the body and more efficient movement in daily life. I like to say on workshops, when I'm teaching meditation workshops, I say, look, anyone can be a saint if they live on a mountaintop and get fed by the villagers every day. And, you know, once a week you make, you know, these wise pronouncements. But as, as, a, as a teacher of a teacher that I worked with for many years said, you think you're enlightened? Go and stay a week with your family. Mm -hmm. That's getting traction. If you if you are growing, that experience will be immensely revealing to you. And what's more, you may be able to um, stay a week with your family without the normal 
things happening that happen in families. But not many people can do that. And we're interested in differences that make a difference while still being in the secular world. I remember you, so you said earlier that um, Olivia, you, you felt like Olivia's role in your life is to point out your your um, your unresolved points and your, your weaknesses so that you can grow into them. That's an idea from David Dada, uh, The Way of the Superior Man. He, I don't know whether you were referring to that, but um, yeah, where he says the role of the feminine, which may or may not be a woman in a relationship, yeah, sure. is to is to do that, to highlight the the points where a man is not living his fullest fullest potential and cause him to grow into that. Well, Olivia, I can say, she's got a PhD in pointing yeah. out. She, <laughs> she, she, she's too good at it sometimes. But, but then again, because we, have, we both have a commitment to actually paying attention to what's happening rather than what we think is happening, I know that's something that I've stressed again and again um, in this podcast, because we really have a commitment to that, it's not just a, an ideal for us, it's actually how we live each day. Um, an intimate relationship is the pressure cooker environment for growth if you can take the heat. What happens in most relationships is you, you reach a point where there's a blow-up and it's easy just to walk away from it, or there's a blow-up and you end up the person whom you loved only five, five minutes ago. The person whom you loved only five minutes ago, suddenly you reconstruct only their negative points into the image of the person that I now want, I'm so angry about or angry with that I'm going to separate from the relationship. Isn't that a kind of insanity? It, it seems like it is to me. And so Olivia and I have decided, well, we would, we would really like to grow. In fact, on that point, let me just make this point. Many people will tell you in conversation, if you ask them what they're interested in, they'll say, well, I'm interested in personal growth. And, and it's, it's become quite fashionable to say that. So my teacher, one of my teachers said, look, are you interested in personal growth? That's the question. And, and the person responds, yes. Um, and then the teacher then identifies the most deeply ingrained habit you have. Let's say it's drinking too much alcohol or maybe you like to smoke too many spliffs or whatever it is. But some or you eat too much of the wrong kind of food, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, or you don't do any exercise, blah, blah, you know, whatever. And the teacher says, okay, um, you say you want to grow. Okay, this habit you have, like with my brother, for example, he won't mind me mentioning this, it's drinking gin, it's not good for him. It's bad for his skin, actually. And so I said, because he asked if, if, I, if he could become a student of mine, and I said, look, it's a, that's a big responsibility, you asking that question, it's not something... I mean, I've had one student before, Dave, who's grown immensely, and that was, you know, we were very closely involved with each other for a long time, seven years. But my brother said, look, I really want to learn something about this stuff too. And I said, okay, so, gin. Are you prepared to give up gin for three months? And he just went quiet, very quiet. And I said, well, that's what personal growth is about. It's actually about giving up the things that you hold most dear. And, and when, when most people are faced with that choice, most people realize, oh, I see, I, I like the idea of growth, growth. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an attractive idea, but actually I don't want to do what's necessary to grow. And if you really want to grow, and this is so hard, but if you really want to grow, you have to contrive the circumstances, and this is where Olivia plays a vital role in my own life, 
you can drive the circumstances so that your actual behavior is reflected back to you. And we're talking, we work together as well as live together, so it's a 24-7 blowtorch, if you want to put it that way. It's, but it's great. That's, it's interesting you say that. I think there's a lot of projection tactics that, that we take to avoid the um, just the consistent application of the basics. And it's a mm. topic that we, we write about occasionally, um, saying that optimization is masturbation, trying to um, fine-tune the kind of higher level stuff before you've got the basics under uh, under control especially with diet and i think that's the biggest one that people are worrying about meal timing and leucine pulsing and how many how much amino acids they're having around their workout and they're not tracking their average weekly calories week on week no. it's like no, look, forget all that stuff you're wasting your time it, well yeah that's absolutely accurate when when we were running those classes we ran at the university for 27 years i ran the advanced class there for 26 years out of the 27 Whenever I was in town, I'd teach the advanced class. And to my students' surprise, I'd go back to the basics, the real basics, every six or eight weeks. But then someone, the light came on one day, and somebody said to me, I can't remember who it was, and she said, I've just felt something in this exercise that I know I can do well that I've never felt before. What's going on? And I said, well, see how you can actually move around in this position? Now, in this position, for most people, that would be, that's it. The tension in the body is so strong, I can't do anything. I can only just try as best I can to relax in the face of that sensory assault. Because you've got the range of movement beyond the requirement of this exercise, now you can start to play with this movement. That's the gold. And so, in anyone who's involved, for example, in your world in strength training or... Well, you see, uh, you see expert powerlifters doing a technique day, or even monks that have been meditating for 20 years, they still go back to counting the breath, for example. Or, oh, I, look, absolutely. In fact, I have a Roshi friend who said to me, I mean, I've done this for longer than he has now, but he said, you know, I did only breath counting for 14 years. And I said to him, look, Paul, Paul, his name is, Paul, his name is, and I said, Paul, mate, I still breath count, and I've been meditating for, you know, as long as him, it must be nearly 30 years now, and do I regard that as any, as any kind of a, you know, I'm a failure, I'm going back to beginner's practice? No. If you want to calibrate your practice, the basic, well, even the most exotic visualizations in Tibetan Buddhism are predicated on mastery of the basics. So you, how do you know whether you've mastered the basics? Don't fucking think about it. Go back and try them. Uh-oh, I just lost count of breath 66. Guess what? You're not paying attention. No problem. But you have to know the fruits of your practice and not, not as an idea, not as a concept. If you set yourself up as a master or a guru, and this is, this is particularly, particularly poignant and powerful in, in my own world, I have, I think I've successfully resisted every attempt of my students to elevate me in some way. Mate, I am, I am, when I say I'm a beginner, I mean that I am a beginner. I have some understanding of the problem set and I can offer, usually offer some advice to other people as to how to improve their own range of movement, but I do not think for one moment I'm an expert of any kind. It just happens, though, that we know a bit more than most people who call themselves experts. Well, I think that's just a scientific approach. It's that, you know, in the light of new evidence, we change our opinion and there's no ego involved. We just have to no. accept the new... And the, I guess the definition of guru status, at least in the fitness industry, 
is the people that will relentlessly hold on to an old but bashed up idea that has been frequently disproved by study upon study but because they've invested their identity into being the low carb guy or being the the whatever then yeah. they they get stuck in their ideas and they have to dig their heels in Mrs. and what it, what we're really talking about here is how the ego will take any measures to defend itself just look at Donald Trump <laughs> I mean he is a perfect example of a narcissistic misogynist who should never be in that role but it but it's perfect because he is a perfect reflection of that fundamental schizophrenia of that culture anyway um as you said yesterday which made me laugh it was a, that that remark was a bit off piste but nonetheless relevant um if you are actually interested in growing and if you find yourself believing your own publicity you've just disappeared up your own ass and and this is the important thing more growth can't happen and for me personally because i'm aware of the passing of time and i've got very little time left um, I, there's still so many things that I want to learn. I, I can't actually allow that to happen. I won't allow it to happen. To shut yourself off from further growth. Oh, I, I, no. The opposite. I'm working harder to deepen my opening to further growth. That's what I'm working on. Cool. And I, it, it's not easy. But at, but at, but at the same time, what, what the fuck else are you going to do, for God's sake? Everything else is just a waste of time. It was actually the, the reason that I decided to go into medicine. It was an Earl Nightingale quote, because uh, I was working in finance at the time in Scotland. And it was, if you don't pursue your dream for fear of it taking too long, don't worry, the time will pass anyway. Absolutely. And I realized that, that is true. I'm just going to be 10 years older, but suicidal working in finance rather than at least on my way to, to be a doctor. So... Or not, or not, and it's okay. Or not, and it's okay. And this is to 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 let go. Look, I, I don't know whether we had this conversation or, or whether it was someone else, but one of the absurdities of our culture is the cultivation of the fear of failure. I think we were talking about this, weren't we? Yesterday. No, you you must embrace failure unless you embrace failure. Failure is exciting because there is a certainty in failure. You know, this could reply to relationships or anything else. You know that this this path that you've been on, it actually you know for sure, not not for, by you know um, hearsay or some other method. You know for sure this doesn't work for you. Wow, that's gold, man. So you say I could put that aside. Is that wasted time? Absolutely not wasted time because of the certainty and the, the you know the, the the closing of the gaps in Indra's net. You now have a quantum of clarity you did not have before. You've gained data. And you, yes, and and and. If you do that a thousand times, you absolutely will be closer to the trajectory you need to be on. And there's no doubt about that. And so in our school system, we reward success, which actually doesn't teach you anything. When you pass an exam, it doesn't teach you anything. And we discriminate strongly against failure. It should be the other way around. We should be rewarding failure and celebrating failure. I know it sounds really crazy to say that. Of course, that's not to say that there's not a desirable course of action that actually brings about the goals that you want to achieve. Of course, that's true. But the key to understanding precisely the nature and the shape and the taste of that is to fail. And fail faster, like the book, the yes. book title. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, very good closing thoughts there, Kit. So um, I think we better wrap this up today. Um, it would be great to, uh, to chat at some point in the future as well. And uh, we will. looking forward to the, the London workshop.
Good. Well, look, one more thing. If your respondents who took the time and made and made the effort to actually ask the questions that we've been using as the structure for today's conversation, if they have follow-up questions or that those questions or the answers are not satisfactory to, in any way at all, let's just have another chat about it. It's, it's that's what we do. That's that I enjoy speaking to you, and I'm I'm just very glad that other people seem to find our conversations interesting because that's actually the genesis of what happened with Dave. The coffee shop conversations came about simply because Dave said, look, I've seized your books, I've read all the articles that you've written, um, I've read everything you've posted, but the fact is my greatest learning happened when you and I were sitting in coffee shops in Sydney and Melbourne and various other places and we're just kibitzing about this, that and the other. And he said, then you told me about you know, this experience or that experience or that teacher you work with or something else, he said, that's the stuff that actually isn't noted anywhere. And it's true. It's not written about because, God, if I ever find myself writing my own autobiography, I'll shoot myself first. But but luckily, the interaction with people like you allows me to talk about these things and also, too, to publicly, publicly express my the deepest and immense gratitude that I have to the teachers that I've been blessed to interact with in this life. Is because you can't plan this stuff. You can't. There are so many bullshitters out there. So, so I, I've been very lucky in that regard. I've, I really have had some wonderful teachers. And, and I would say to any of your audience, if you are interested in deepening your understanding of any of these things, go and sit with someone or go and work with someone for a while and see what kind of person they are. Not the province providence of what no it's provenance isn't it provenance of their teaching who their teachers are what phds they have or any of that stuff i mean i did phd research i won an australian postgraduate research award i had a dream run through the academic system but it was actually my work in the limits to science that's what my phd phd work was about and i worked in an area of logic as you know um, that's actually what took me back to Buddhism because I realized that all of the important questions that I had Science had literally nothing to say about and so I had this wide and deep understanding of science and also the limits to the scientific method and I realized that That will not provide the sort of answers that most people are looking for when they say to themselves God, I just want to see something a bit deeper than the appearance of this thing that I'm looking at I guess this is something you see with physicists and mathematicians and logicians where they kind of go full circle in this way mm. and realise that studying the objective can't reveal anything about the subjective. No. And in fact, the subjective is explicitly discriminated against, and yet, <coughs> in, in the scientific method at least anyway, and yet, anyone listening, you'll know that your most important experiences from the taste of the beer that you're going to have or... Um, the sensation if you're of holding your girlfriend or your boyfriend or, or whatever, all of, none of those things can be understood by the scientific method. Here's my classic example: nothing, no description of the taste of an orange is the taste of the orange except biting into one. I mean, it's, I mean, it's obvious when it's said, but it's not obvious when you think about it. Mm -hmm. So, what in our work, what we're trying to do is to get closer and closer to the direct experience of being human, not just ideas about being human. That's, That's probably a good place to finish. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, thank, thank you so much. Speechless on that. Kit, thank you very much. And we'll speak thank to you, you very soon. much. Yourself. I look forward to seeing you again soon, man, really. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, Johnny again, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Propane Fitness Podcast. Just a short reminder, if you're listening to this, driving in your car and you're thinking, man, I really wish I had a reference that they made in minute five or 10 or whatever to that thing that they were talking about. Well, we've, we put together show notes for these podcasts every single week. We give you timestamps, we give you links to things we talk about, and we also give chances to grab free things, bonuses, etc. So head over to propanefitness.com and grab the show notes for this episode over there. Also, if you want to be notified of these podcasts when they come out, if you want free subscribe, subscriber-only benefits, stick your email address in and grab our free downloads, one of the many free downloads if you go to propanefitness.com and the homepage. There's a big red banner on the top of the website. Pick up that free ebook, that free download, and we'll send you emails whenever a new podcast is available. Just one short reminder as well. As you are a podcast listener, you have access to our exclusive free gift that is available nowhere else. And that is at propinfitness.com forward slash gift. Shop, shop.